Hi, everybody. It's Devan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. Please remember to support the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. So the first caller is calling in from China and is having trouble negotiating with people, especially middle-aged women. And we talk about some of the reasons, both cultural, general, historical, and personal historical, as to why that might be the case. The second caller had a good question. Uh, isn't immigration just another form of free trade. In other words, the problem is the welfare state, and uh, if we get rid of the welfare state, then immigration can be a free situation and environment. So why fight immigration when we should be fighting the welfare state? Well, that's a great question too, and uh, we had a good back and forth about it. Third caller, if an 11-year-old boy shoots and kills his 8-year-old neighbor girl because she would not let him see her new puppy, should the father of the boy be sent to prison for murder? This actually did happen in America a little while back, and we talked about the various possibilities and the moral stance of that. Fourth caller. Hey, man, <laughs> what's wrong with me wanting to get laid? Why is it learning certain pickup artist skills, how to talk to a woman you think is attractive, bad for some guys, if you were only self-sabotaging without them? What's wrong with learning these tools of the trade, these tricks of seduction? And um, you'll probably be a little bit surprised by my answer, but um, it's a great show. Uh, I look forward to your feedback on it, and thank you so much for listening. Here we go. All right. Well, up first is David. David wrote in and said, I experienced a quote-unquote phase shift in my mind when I am negotiating, especially with a middle-aged female party, and a sudden quote-unquote depressed shock comes in, and I feel like I must give in to the terms of the opposite party, even if I am treated unjustly. How can I work on improving this for myself, as this seems to be a problem that hides my subconscious and truly comes out only in these negotiating types of situations? That's from David. Right. It's a great question, David. Um, Again, I keep, I don't know if you're white or not, but the privilege card, if you've missed, you know, like if it's, just look around, check under the couch, uh, check where your testicles used to be, just <laughs> use your male privilege. A lot of people forget that, um, that it's this magic card. I mean, we can see that the guy who's in charge of uh, Missouri University, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's currently, uh, I think he's, he's checking in his glove box for his uh, white privilege card because uh, in, in truly Chairman Mao fashion, he's being forced to confess his sins Absolutely. Uh, and uh, make a public apology and grovel. Uh, and that, of course, is all about the privilege. Sorry, you were going to say? Yeah. Well, the thing is, since I'm working in China and I've read a lot about Chinese history, um, back in the days when there were uh, uh, like eunuchs walking around, you know, those people who served the emperors and they had their balls cut off, they actually would put their testicles in, into like this bam, small bamboo compartment and hang it in like the sacred room of people who lost their balls. So uh, I'm sure there, there are those rooms floating around somewhere. But uh, th- th- Yeah, <laughs> I think, in fact, uh, you can get entire syllabi put forward by frizzy-haired ladies uh, about all of this stuff. So um, Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. Now, is it is it in business for the most part uh, no. that this occurs? I think, I mean, I, I remember the, uh, and by the way, thank you for having me on your show. I mean, I, I can't tell you how. Oh, it's my total I, pleasure. It's a, yeah, it's a real yeah. pleasure to be able to chat with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I you mean, in particular. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's just that, um, it's just that ever since I, I've, I've been actually looking into philosophy since like years back, but I, I didn't first start with you. I first started with some, with another guy who, but he was more Plato than Socrates. And I kind of dumped him after a while because he was, he was still pro-government. So I was like, then once I discovered you guys, I realized, you know, 
my world's if my if my world was a ship, it's the ship basically sank in, but you guys are like that log I'm hanging on to in the middle of the ocean. So Well let me I, let me tell you this, David. i I'll keep this brief. I'll keep this brief. But yeah. in in going over the news and going over the voting patterns and going over what American people believe and what other people in the world believe, I can really see where Plato was coming from. <laughs> I can really see Philosopher King, yeah, that sounds like about right. Can I get a whip? Can I get some hot <laughs> candle wax on the socialist nipples? That's what I want, baby. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm telling you, because, of course, Socrates saw the man he loved the most. I mean, Alcibiades, maybe sexually, but uh, the man he loved the most was put to death by the mob. And that, that can give you some pause when it comes to thinking about democracy. And uh, it was interesting in the Republican debate last night, they kept talking about philosophers and philosopher kings and so on. And, um, yeah, I can understand, you know, if you look at the masses of people and... It's not by accident, of course, but the lies that they believe, and it's not entirely their fault because the way the powers work. And why you're like, okay, enough negotiating. I am a giant brainstem. You will now obey because you don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, I, yeah. I, I, I can I, definitely I, sympathize with Plato on that one. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't think it's just middle. I, I, I mean, I've had a few months to think about this question because um, I was, I, I know I was scheduled to come back, come on August a few months back. But like, I, I think that it's not just with the women. I think it really stands out with the women because of my experience with my mother from my early childhood. But um, I think that it's she was just very uh, aggressive, right? Like you have oh. an adverse childhood experience score of eight, which is very high. And for those sort of new to the conversation, you can just look up ACE or adverse childhood experience score, which is pretty. I mean, it's not exactly comprehensive in the way that I would like it to be, but it's a good mm-hmm. measure of how your childhood is. At least it gives you some numbers uh, behind it. You have one of eight, which I'm obviously incredibly sorry for. That's a very, very tough place to start. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Um, the thing is, is yeah, it's, it's, I think it's just that the original archetype for that mean, like non-negotiating monster came from my mother. So but it's just, it's not just a middle-aged woman when I think about it. It's just anybody when they. I mean, it's just the country where I live in. I mean, the. I mean, the, I mean, you definitely know this, but I experience it personally every day. Like, even if you go down to the convenience store, you can't like if you if you even show like a little bit of what seems like polite, meek vulnerability, you get attacked. I mean, it's it's just sure. like the people will just verbally abuse you. Like, oh, if you ask them, like I was in the supermarket, I was asking, hey, do you know where something is? They'll be like. How could you not know that? It's, it's it's in that aisle, or like it's in that aisle. Can't you see, or something like that? But they'll they'll say it in Mandarin, of course. But like it's, it's just like service here is almost it's downright non-existent. And it's just can like, can I give you my Asian my brief Asian story? Very, very sure, brief, sure, honestly. sure, absolutely. That, right? Go so, ahead, go right ahead. I, I want to hear it. <laughs> so um, it doesn't really matter the circumstances, but um, I met uh, in a a really Japanese restaurant. Oh, uh, some some wealthy. <laughs> Japanese mm-hmm. men and you know they give you that you come in as a big nosed blue eyed foreign person and you know you kind of get that look like uh, I wonder if he comes with that fishy smell that I've heard comes with Caucasians or something like that really? you get that look <laughs> uh, and anyway um, and it was it was a very authentic Japanese restaurant which means I'm frightened to eat anything right it's like you want to go for really authentic Chinese food I really don't. In fact, I pay good money to not give me something really anglicized that's basted in heavy MSG. Uh, that's what I want. And so I was just nervous to eat stuff. And, and so they, uh, what do you want? I was like, we'll take them. 
I was there with a friend. We'll take sushi. And everyone like literally just burst out laughing. Uh, no, no, it was tempura, tempura. We want tempura. That's what we want. And uh, everybody just like burst out laughing. Like how, you know, and, and of course, I don't know what exactly the joke is, but you can feel that harsh. It's like it's like rocks yeah, on a tin exactly. roof sliding down that exactly. harsh laughter. Like you can see this on the fail videos, you know, that <laughs> ha, 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 laughter, oh, yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, my God. yeah, that, that high pitched laugh, screeching never laughter. Happens to me. Oh, my and oh it's brutal it's a brutal part of culture and of course yeah. it comes you see this on the internet sometimes when people post that all caps ha ha ha, ha yeah, like yeah, they just yeah, totally. crawl inside your head and make you crazy yeah yeah and, i really uh, like so the I, that yeah, troll inside your head yeah yeah absolutely it's like it's like you internalize that and it's, it's just like it feels now that you bring that up it's just like a reverberation from inside of you when that this per, random person who's just completely shallow and dumb outside of you gives you that attitude then you feel that 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 inside of you it's like oh man it's like this but, but here's the thing i mean and i you know i i'm veering back and forth on a whole bunch of stuff at the moment no, nothing obviously foundational yeah zeus <laughs> he's, funny. he's got all the answers i was oh, looking right, in the totally. wrong church you might be a better option now. <laughs> um but uh and more rip torn but one of the things that i'm veering is like it's not it's not the responsibility of the average person to come up with a philosophical theory right right i mean any more than it's my responsibility to come up with a scientific method or mm -hmm. like and and very very few people have the intelligence the, the drive the commitment the ambition the ability to go out and create some philosophical framework right now in the, and, of course, all societies develop in the absence of a philosophical framework. This is the right. huge challenge that philosophers yeah. and thinkers and people with compassion and curiosity always face is that society is like this scar tissue that happens when you take the heart of reason out of childhood. Like, you, you, like Aztecs, you <laughs> crack the chest, go in, suck out the beating heart of rationality, and then the blood that rushes in, the superstition that rushes in, the nationalism that rushes in, the, the tribalism that rushes in, all of that is that's when you... Right? And this process of removing reason from the hearts and minds of children creates this giant sucking chest wound called society. And it's not people's fault. To, uh, it's not people's fault. And it's not, you know, 99.999% of people have no capacity to fix it. But here's the thing. In the absence of philosophy, like, we still have to make decisions. Right. People got to get health care. Stuff's got to get built. Yeah, absolutely. Cars got to get made. <laughs> you know, people got to get their haircuts. Yeah. Um, criminals need to be dealt with in some manner. Like, yeah. we have to make decisions as a society. Yeah. And believe it or not, this is actually <laughs> part of I'm the, this is actually part of, of, of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which is we have to make decisions in society. And if mm -hmm. we don't have philosophy, if we don't have compassion and reason and evidence, mm -hmm. what are we left with? We're left with win lose. Yeah. And I think we're left with win lose. Sorry, go ahead. And people yeah, people who are who only deal in the win lose, which is everyone around me, it seems, foreigner or local. I mean, I'm a foreign teacher, but like every everyone, I mean I'm I'm fluent in Mandarin, but like everyone around me is they're 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 on the win lose. Like and it's just like it's like you're just like in this world of complete non-thinking shallowness of pre predetermined ideas. And like even in the foreign teacher circles, you get like these wild, naive Pollyanna type liberals who think like, oh, you know, I, I went to school with a couple of smart uh, Asian kids. So now 
like this this place must be so full of culture and la di da and ba di da and like perfection and just like this bubble and then you get like the conservatives with who are religious and then 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 they're like oh oh okay well this they're they're all misguided you know and and then it's 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 just that you know every every everything is has something that has to be criticized and you know it's like oh my goodness is there is there like a balance you know is there like a balance somewhere and there and where there's no balance i mean it's just going to be it's just pure isolation and and if there and where there is no balance you're going to end up basically you know, it's it's only going to lead back to suffering, and you know, the road to perdition is pretty much on its way. And you know, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and the people who've who've invested their entire emotional and psychological and verbal and intellectual skill set on win lose, yeah, are heavily invested in the prevention of the spread of philosophy. And people say, why do people get so mad at philosophers? Right? What are the two things that are constantly railed at? When philosophers come along, number one, you refuse to believe in the gods of the city. And number two, you are corrupting the young. Well, no, actually, we're trying to prevent the young from being corrupted. That only looks like corruption to the corrupt. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so uh, society as a whole has coalesced around this win-lose paradigm. Yeah. And you've got to think of that as an evolutionary environment. This is an ecosystem where certain kinds of brutalities and contempts and manipulations in personality structures do really well in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Like and the sadist does really well in the concentration camp, and, and oh, yeah. you know the empath, their, their head explodes, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the, all of society has coalesced around this win-lose situation. Win-lose, win-lose, win-lose. Yeah. And it's everywhere. Right? And it's part of the immigration debate. Oh, if the immigrants come in, we're going to lose. But if, if they don't come in, then they're going to lose. And the idea of it being win-win is... It's out of people's heads for the most part. And it's also out of the structure of society as a whole. And so and, and the reason so when you're in an environment where you are you want to negotiate mm-hmm. well, um, if you have to look at the culture around you as a whole and say, okay, well, what is the cultural methodology for resolving disputes? How does this culture resolve disputes? Now, in China, appeal to authority, appeal to ancestor, appeal to age. Oh, yeah. Right? I, I absolutely love that. Well, when I say love, I, I'm sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic. My mom and dad banged each other before your mom and dad did. So you must listen to me. <laughs> it's just, oh, the tree with the most rings wins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Because, of course, well, okay, there's, there's two sides to this, right? So on the one side, the young people look at old people and say, you guys are like really stodgy and you don't know how to have fun and your ideas are all kind of fossilized and all this kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but on the other hand, uh, you know, when you get older, you have seen a lot more stuff. And if you've been at all alert to the patterns in life, you can extract some wisdom out yeah. of a dismal series of photoshoppedly brutal experiences in the world. Totally. And so, but, but in China, how, how do you win? You win by tree rings, right? That's, that's how it works. Uh, you count them up, and, right? Or it's male uh, to female, or it's female to, to children. Uh, but how, how do you win? I'm bigger, I'm older, I'm taller. And, and in other areas, it's I'm better looking. Yeah, totally. And I in mean, other it's, areas, it's, it's I'm shallow. richer. Yeah, and in other areas, it's I'm more popular. And in other areas, I win because I'm more athletic. Yeah, and it's it, and it's 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 just so it's just so shallow. But the thing is, it's not even if you win. I mean, 
if you appeal to authority, you're basically like you got to shout. You got to shout. And it's just like, oh, I have a louder voice or I I just know more than you without having to provide any reason, rash, ration and evidence. But I just I look like I'm a terrorist and I'm going to blow myself up if, if you don't give in. And basically that's right. The appeal to and, authority. But then. Yeah. Oh, and in a um, in a society where there's no reason and evidence. To resolve disputes. Self-knowledge is a giant curse. Because self-knowledge breeds doubt. And doubt breeds losing in a win-lose society. Now, in a win-win society or in a win-win environment, self-knowledge is very important. Mm -hmm. But in a win-lose society, self-knowledge and the associated doubt and humility becomes a giant loss, which is why societies without philosophy reward the people who do what I call repeat and escalate. Yeah, absolutely. Repeat and and, and escalate. And with that, with that other side, I was going to make a point like with the there's the other side to that with with the win lose and the, the person who loses, they go into the slave mindset and they'll they'll just wait, wait, they'll just be like, I'll, I'll be passive aggressive whenever I can. And whenever the master shows vulnerability or doubt, I'm just going to go in and, and like do something that's going to sabotage everything that he or she wants. And it's, it's just like that. The, and and at, when you live in this kind of society, it's like where how can you foster and harbor a sense of understanding what equality means? You can't. I mean, the people who grow up in these kinds of cultures, when they go overseas or abroad. I mean, you see this, I see this. Cause like when I, when, when I went before I went to China to work as a teacher, like I've met these people who, who went, who came from China, China, but the, they'll, they'll be like, you know, Oh, I'm so happy to be here. You know, I'm so happy to be in the States. It's so free here, but then they'll just go back and the, and the next sentence will be like, Oh, Americans are so lazy and they're, they're just so this and that, you know, they, they, they need someone who, who can control them or like they, American kids don't get hit and blah, 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 which is not true. But like, it's like, you, know, you, you see this like paradigm of like complete win lose. But like, I wasn't aware of this back then, but now looking back, you, you, you did that. If, if I had known what I know now, I don't know if I, I'd even go to China because back then, like years back, I was, I was also in that. Oh, the the culture thing, like culture is equals virtue and virtue must be because, you know, there's culture and stuff like that. But that's that's because people who are into culture, they forgot about virtue a long time ago. So that's pretty. uh... Right. So so when you're in a negotiation with someone. If you have sort of sensitivity and empathy and self-knowledge, which is to say, if you're intelligent for the most part then what's going to happen is you are going to be at a disadvantage. You know, in the modern world, you know, like the the blind jocks strut down the hallway like peacocks with their balls on fire and the nerds get shoved into closets, right? The people with self-knowledge, and, and this is what's confusing sometimes about this show for people in that I have a good degree of self-knowledge, but I think I also have a reasonable amount of... Um, uh, Self-confidence, assertiveness, uh, and, and so on. And that's kind of confusing for people because most time assertiveness is associated with aggression. And uh, in a win-lose society, yeah, whoever screams loudest. You can see this playing out in campuses across America at the moment. People have no principles behind them. They just scream loudest. And um, they, they win. And uh, everybody says, okay, okay, yeah, just appease you. Yeah, give, give you what you want. It's too uncomfortable. Go ahead. Fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so this, this, this repeat and escalate uh, can only arise from people who are absolutely certain that they're right. And you, you see this with, with comedians, right? I mean, like Bill Maher and, and John Oliver and so on. Funny guys and, and some stuff that's really smart and some stuff that I could certainly get behind. But in general, they're just so absolutely sure that Republicans are just plain morons. <laughs> like the, the, the Republicans have nothing of value to offer, nothing of value. They're all just mouth-breathing, trigger-happy douchebags who, you know, lick statues of Jesus and masturbate over racism. That's like they have nothing of value whatsoever to, to offer, and, and they have no doubt about that. I, I said it's really dangerous to put yourself in that black-white kind of mindset because you, you're— No, no, like, it's but, dangerous for you. Yeah. It's dangerous for me. Yeah. They love it. Because oh, right. <laughs> they, they love benefit. it. I mean, Bill Maher is not sitting there going, "Well, you know, I do have a successful television show, and I am in demand to speak." <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, they've no doubt that for them it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Because when you don't have a rational methodology for resolving disputes, you've got to go tribal. Oh yeah. Right. You've got to. You've just got to have more people behind you buoying you up. Right. The social metaphysics that. Rand talks about, right, that, that you say not what is true, but what do people believe is true? And, and can I get enough people behind me to jam my truth through in society, which is kind of the definition of so when, the democracy. So when you're negotiating with someone, first of all, the question is, am I actually negotiating with someone? Because this repeat and escalate is very, very common. You'll see it a lot, right? So somebody will say, my position is X, Y, and Z. And you say, well, you know, here's the problem I have with X, Y, and Z. And they said, my position is X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, X, Y, and Z, there's some problems. X doesn't lead to Y. Y doesn't lead. My position is X, Y, and Z. No, again, I'm having trouble with the X, Y, and Z. Let me tell you why uh, I disagree with it and why I push it back. For the fourth time, I feel like I have to keep explaining this over and over and over again. My position is X, Y, Z. Yeah, and you just have to give them some carrots after a while. You're like, all right, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Here, here, here are some carrots, Mr. Rabbit. <laughs> well, and, and what do you do? No, well, I mean, you, these are you people can't... who are, they're not looking for win-win. No, they're not. And, w and when your beliefs are rigid, you have to end up clinging together with other people who have the same rigid beliefs. This is as true uh, on the left as it is on the right and anywhere in between. I mean, if you, you know, it's like the people who are absolutely certain catastrophic anthropogenic global warming to be solved by massive government programs. Mm -hmm. And anyone who doubts it, anyone who has any skepticism about it. Yeah. And you... <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it's in, like it's incomprehensible that like jeers and mocking and all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and I, yeah. It, so it, is, it is, it is, yeah. It is really hard to kind of tell, like if it, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, it's really hard to find anyone with with anything in common with you once you start getting self knowledge. I mean, uh, I started self doing the self journaling thing like er, earlier this year. I mean, I was. I was listening to your shows for like hours on end, like five, six hours a day. And as I was listening, I would journal because like I remember listening to this podcast you did with Dr. Daniel Mackler about the self-therapy. And like because I mean, I'm, I'm overseas right now and I, I can't afford therapy right now. But like I'm trying to do everything I can to uh, untie the uh, cobwebs that have built up in my mind over all these years. And like and, and then I started reading some books about uh, by Ayn Rand. Like I was, I started reading this book called um, Introduction to Objectivism. And as as I was, re I'm still, I'm I'm just beginning to learn about it. But like, 
I realized that like if I really accept these values and beliefs, like I really would be a d- completely different species from these people who are just win lose. Like you just think completely differently because I was raised in a very very win lose household, and like it's like it's like I, I, I like I can't I, I couldn't really find any kid around me who was raised like me, and then. After I grew up, I, like I went, I because I was against the Iraq War in back in two thousand three. I started going on these these alter, alternative news websites, but like a lot of them, unfortunately, were pretty conspiracy uh, geared too. But like, so I got into that for a while. But then I remember downloading this book about like supposedly about the MK Ultra pro- program that the go- U.S. government did to like brainwash some kids to so that they became like I don't know assassins or whatever. And like I read in the book about how like. That the parent would make the kid like wrote memorize like math charts and like ask them random questions and like like that's kind of that's that was kind of how I was raised that was my even going back as far as I was three like in my early childhood childhood and that I think that that did kind of fuck me up because I I I lost because I wasn't exercising my my negotiation muscles I wasn't actually ex- exercising my reason my logic because oh no no hang on hang on hang on yeah <laughs> okay sorry sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, but um, first of all, I don't think it's Doctor Daniel Mackler. I think it's just Daniel Mackler. He's got a master's degree or something like that. I just oh, okay. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, no, no problem. Uh, but um, you said you weren't exercising this. Listen, I mean, it's like you, if you're a kid locked in the cupboard under the stairs, and you say, "Well, I, I guess I just never got into running." Well, no. Children are born negotiators. I mean, if you if you want to have a successful human being. Just don't resist the negotiation with your kids. And I, I don't think my daughter is, is unusual in this regard. It's like, well, you got to go to bed at 850, 853, 852, 851. Hup, hup, you know, like, it's like we get into this Barker back and forth, right? I mean, uh, they are born negotiators. And uh, if you, um, you know, if you are a win-lose personality structure and a child tries to negotiate with you, it's going to provoke aggression in you. Um, which is why this, this brutality tends to replicate. But uh, when you're in a negotiation with someone, first of all, never assume you are in a negotiation with someone. Never. Okay. Never assume that you're in a negotiation with someone because by far, with the, with the majority of the people that you're ever going to have disagreements with in your life, you know, and you get older and you start to self-select people and, and you start to recognize that life is too short to waste time on people who are low quality. It was a fundamental realization. So, if I'm going to live forever, I guess I can just go hang with these people. Oh, wait, what? Mortality? Death? Okay. <laughs> let's start eating better and let's start exercising more and let's start cleaning up our social environment so that I'm not wasting my time being surrounded by people with the spine and passivity of uh, man of war jellyfish. So, <laughs> so d- do not assume that you're negotiating with anyone. Until proven otherwise. Be open to it, of course, right? But, uh, but do not assume that you're going to be negotiating. Now, there's people who are willing to um, take on the win-lose personality structure in certain situations. I mean, I'm certainly willing to do that in certain debates and so on. If that's, if that's what's necessary, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll escalate. But um, in, it's not what you want to do. What you want to do is surround yourself with people who are going to feed the negotiation muscle and starve the aggression response. Um, and uh, you, you can't negotiate people into something they were never negotiated out of. Like you can't reason people into beliefs that they were never reasoned into in the first place. 
And um, when people are good at negotiating, you'll know it right away. And these are the people that you want to keep close to you and you want to hold them as precious gems to your golem beating heart, right? I mean, you really want to hold these people close and you want to build your life around the relationships of reason and empathy, curiosity, compassion, evidence, love, right? I mean, when I was younger, I thought I made my way in the world and I carved my way in the world and I thought that making my way in the world was achieving sort of material success and, and um, fame or, or sexual success or whatever it is. And all of that is just a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of fireflies that, that lead you off a cliff. The, the reality is that you want, to, you want to build your life. You want to carve your way in the world by gathering together and holding together the most reasonable and lovely people you can find. That uh, the ambition is not for money or fame or stuff, that the ambition must be for love. And love is impossible in a win-lose environment. And it's the antithesis of a win-lose environment because love is our involuntary response to virtue. And it is fundamentally a lie to dominate people and then pretend that you're negotiating. It's a fundamental falsehood. The moment you can get people to lie about whatever's basic to their personalities, you own them because then they become dependent on you to maintain that lie. And so, you know, nationalism or racism or um, certain sorts of religiosity and so on. So don't assume that you're negotiating with people. And if you do find yourself in a situation where you are unable to negotiate with someone, you know, when, you know, if, if you want to go and play tennis with someone and they show up in a chicken suit with a shotgun, well, you may be playing something, but it's not really going to be tennis. It might be running away. <laughs> <laughs> the game called Don't Shoot Me, Chicken Person. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, when we're young, there's this kind of learned, learned helplessness because we're just born into our families. We're born into our environments. We're born into our schools. We're born into our social circles or whatever. And we can't get away. We may not like it there. We may, may, be, may be the very antithesis of who we are as human beings, but we can't get away. And sometimes we, 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 we take that helplessness with us when we go out into the world and we say, well... Okay, so I, I mean, I have crazy people around me, but I can't really do anything about it. And, and, and then we're kind of drawn to fulfill that initial cycle or pattern of helplessness in the face of aggression or, or dominance or abuse. And my suggestion is that the glorious gift that we're given as adults is voluntariness, voluntarism in our relationships. And I think and, that uh, that's what that's the thing to aim for the most. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think I do think that. The fact that I did not grow up in any kind of negotiating environment whatsoever, it did that. I think this is part. This is why I decided to go to a, a country like China to work because here there is no negotiation, and this is the this it was the environment that I was used that I was used to. But thankfully, I'm not used to that environment anymore. I, I it's bothering there, you now. Yeah, it, it, I'm unwinding. I'm getting unused <laughs> to it. I'm rapidly good. getting unused to it. You know, that's definitely, which is a good thing. Definitely a good thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and the fact that you're not used to it and it's bothering you is really clear. And um, bring as much reason into your relationships. And uh, the dominance, the win-lose people will just attack or flee that rationality. But uh, the people who stay in are curious, well, they're the people you can start to begin to build your life on. You know, there's that old biblical saying, do not build your house on sand, but build it upon rock. And the sand is win-lose, and the rock is win-win. 
And uh, you can't have a happy and peaceful and productive house if you are doomed to be forever in these petty thumb wars of nonsense. You know, like like people, <laughs> I can't believe the thing. When I was a kid, of course, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood, which means a lot of dysfunctional relationships. Right? I mean, one of the reasons, it, it's spiritual poverty that, that ends up in material poverty. But it was like, you'd hear people yelling about like, I mean, I saw some movie with Anne Hathaway where there was this contest over who could more efficiently fill the dishwasher. You know, dishwashers, it's great that they've stopped people having to do dishes, but the time they save from people not having to do dishes has been entirely consumed by people arguing about the best way to fill up a dishwasher. And get, get like this big time vacuum of what am I going to do now? Oh, I'm just going to repeat my trauma onto other people. <laughs> Traumatize this whole world. And there comes a time, yeah, there comes a time, you know, the, the real solution to trauma repetition in my humble and, of course, amateur opinion, but the real solution to what I call Simon the Boxer or this, this idea that, that uh, if we grow up being dominated, then the only sense of efficacy we find in our life is managing the feelings of being dominated, which means that efficacy results in seeking out people to dominate us in the future so we can feel some sense of power and control. But there's this great solution. You know, the, the relationships in my life that have, they don't end with a bang, they end with a whimper. Yeah, totally. Right, because what happens is you just, you say, you know what? Because I'm going to be dead, I literally and simply cannot ever have this conversation again. It's that click moment that you talked about. Like you, you spend all this time being nice to them until you just don't. And it's, it's, it's not like with a bang. You don't say, I'm never going to talk to you again or loudly or, or something like that. You just like, mm. wait, yeah, what? I, I, can, I can never have a conversation about how well I'm sweeping the front hallway ever, ever again. I can never have a conversation about whether I got all the spots off the glass when I was doing the dishes ever, ever again. I cannot have a conversation about how well I have weeded the garden. I cannot have a conversation about whether I should go slightly above or slightly below the speed limit. I cannot have these petty, useless, stupid, strangling, boring, dusty-brained, empty-hearted conversations ever again. I simply can't. And that's... The click is, is boredom, where you realize that it's going to be a Groundhog Day of useless, petty, squabbling domination and submission for the rest of your life with nothing to show for it other than a life wasted on petty squabbles. Like I remember when I was a kid and I hear people screaming around the place, you know, the couples yelling and all that. And Man, the stuff they were yelling about. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I told you to pick up my shoes. You left your jacket in the hallway again. And I think it's just the conformity. I, I, I'm sorry, Steph. I do have class in about ten minutes, so I, I have to make this la make this point, and then I have to drop off. The oh, I, I see. Well, I I'm very busy too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry. No, no. I, I actually have have some more questions, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call back in the future. I that 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 I promise. But um. What, what I'm, I think that the reason I'm shocked and depressed when I feel that shock and depression come in is I, was, I, I don't want my peers because I want to conform to my peers. I want to be accepted. And my peers would be like if they saw me on the losing side of a win-lose, they'll just go, 
ah ha ha ha, David lost to that person, or blah blah blah, or they'll they'll, they'll be they'll if I lost to like a teacher or to an authority figure, they'll be like. If I were to ever try to negotiate or reason with them again, they'll be like, yeah, but I mean, you still have to listen to the teacher, right? Remember that time when that teacher yelled at you and you cowered and stuff like that? You know, it's just that just that our, our my my peers are in my mind, too. And it's, it's just like, of course. yeah, it's, 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 it's really that that's that. I think that's a really big hurdle because that's all you know, really. You got to surround like what you said about the community of philosophers. And I think that's 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 just that is i mean that that would be heaven to people who to you and i who are living in the here and now i mean to live to be in a community of philosophers where people don't think like that you know yeah and and where you know every submission gets a little easier uh or at least a little more predictable and you know if if you've been submitting to someone for 5 or 10 or 20 years then standing up for yourself becomes a virtual impossibility. At least that's been my experience. Because they harden, right? They they harden. It's like it's like two carpets that overlap. One's got to be on top, and one's got to be on bottom. And it's not like you're going to rotate them. You just unroll them, and whichever one's on top is on top, and whichever one's on bottom is on bottom. Maybe you'll adjust them once, and then that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's how it stays until you move or you die, and somebody gets rid of the carpets. And that's the way it is in so many relationships. It's just there's a fixed way of being that, that, that this is the way things are. I am this way and I'm never going to be coached by you and I'm always going to be giving you advice. I'm not always going to be the more knowledgeable one. I'm always going right? to and, and what happens then is you're, you're limited because anything you get really good at, when you're in a relationship where somebody is dominating you, anything that you really get good at, the other person doesn't want to have anything to do with because that's your area of expertise and they have to avoid it. Like the plague, because it undermines the historical "I'm the carpet on top" stuff. Anyway, listen, I know you got to go to class, so uh, I hope this has been somewhat helpful. Um, yeah, absolutely. And don't try and change people into becoming negotiators when they're dominant, especially if they've sort of passed thirty kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe miracles happen, but uh, I think people <laughs> harden into these roles. So, good point. Good Thanks advice. for the call, man. It was really, thank, really thank a great you. pleasure chatting. Thank you for having me on. You guys have a good one. Bye bye. All right, well, up next is Jamin. He writes in and says, Isn't immigration just a form of free trade? If the real problem lies in the social programs that entice immigrants to a country, is energy spent fighting immigration misdirected? That's from Jamin. Uh, I don't know. What do you, I mean, I have some thoughts, but what do you think? Well, um, I know that uh, recently you said that uh, if people argue or disagree about things, if you reduce them to their fundamental principles, the universal principles, um, usually you can find the path of virtue. And uh, um, if you reduce immigration, I mean, if somebody wants to come across the border and find work and come into a voluntary agreement to pay rent, um, is, I mean, there's nothing morally wrong with that. And the problem seems to come when there's free things that are being given to them. And, you know, I mean, I know you've said before, it's not really people's fault for wanting to buy politicians because politicians are for sale. So, I mean, if three things are being given out, it's not people's fault for wanting to come and get those things. It's the people who are giving out those free things at our own expense. Those are what are causing the problem. Am I off base? Well, I mean, there's a lot in... In what you said, look, I mean, if in I don't know if you're talking about America, but that's, of course, the most yeah. um, glaring example these days. Look, if people, let's say from Mexico, were yeah. coming across the border 
and uh, working hard and, and getting jobs and so on, immigration would clearly be much less of an issue. Clearly. But the fact is that uh, in some immigrant populations, and in particular, of course, I'm thinking about the migrants from the Middle East, even 91% of them on food stamps. You know, among immigrants, you have 50 to 60% of the families on welfare. Now you have a problem. Like, it, it, it's funny how everybody looks to the host culture, the host civilization, and says, well, it's just up to you. It's like, do you know that um, if immigrants came across and committed to work hard and didn't do the anchor baby switcheroo and, you know, didn't jump on welfare and, and, and so on, then people would be a lot more welcoming. I don't know if you've ever had a house guest who's annoying. Certainly. But, but you, you know, when you're young, you, you know, if you're like me, like I lived in 18 places over a 10-year period for a variety of reasons, and you're constantly cycling in and out of roommates. And some roommates I didn't really care for. Uh, other roommates I have remained friends with to this day. Right. And so this idea that it's like, well, just open up your house, so to speak, it's like, well, it does have something to do with what the immigrants do. And if there were, you know, sort of strong and stern lectures about, um, you know, so the Mexicans, if the Mexicans, right, let's just give them some power, right? Instead of just, you know, voting Democrat, as they <laughs> generally do, and, uh, uh, and just going on welfare, like what if the Mexicans had this going on, right? So some Mexican comes, some Mexican family comes across the border illegally or something like that, and the, they, they go to wherever, I don't know where they go, with a bunch of other Mexicans around, and maybe they're there legally or not or whatever, right? Now, if these Mexicans sat down with these new arrivals and said, okay, listen, we are, uh, we are guests here, and you're not even an invited guest, you're kind of living in the, in the ducks here, right? I mean, so the important thing here is that as Mexicans, we are very much respected and welcomed in this country. And the way that we do that is we make sure that we don't go on welfare, because obviously we've not paid into this welfare system, so we make sure we don't go on welfare. And we also make sure that we don't aggregate and vote for political advantage against the dominant culture. And we educate our own children so that we're not imposing our children's needs on the dominant population because that diverts resources away from their kids and, and so on, right? Because Spanish speaking and different culture and so on. And so if they all sit down and said, okay, well, look, uh, this is the situation. We, uh, we don't like it in Mexico. We're coming to America. How is it that we can be the best possible and, and greatest model citizens, the best possible people in this environment to the point where people are like, damn, <laughs> these people are fantastic. And they don't pillage the public purse they've never paid into. They don't uh, cause, cause problems. They're not, you know, they, they deal with, if there are any criminals, those people then ship those people back over the border themselves. Right? Th there are situations by which Immigrant groups can make themselves extremely positively received and welcome in a host country, in a host environment. And the idea that it's just up to the, it's just one-sided, like it's only up to the dominant culture in America to like or not like the immigrants, regardless of how the immigrants behave. Well, it's nobody's obligation to like any anybody. I mean, that's... 
you don't have to like it. I mean, it's just a matter of, like, if, for example, the welfare were not available to them, and but it is like it is. I know, Native but households that's are using saying. welfare at a rate of thirty percent. Immigrant households fifty-one percent. Illegal immigrant households sixty-two percent. More than twice. More than twice. Well, so what do you expect? Well, I mean, what do people expect now? If the immigrant household says, "Well, the last thing we want to do is uh, is is make our presence here discomforting for the majority population." You know, the path to citizenship, if, if you want to call it that, is this big debate, right? A path to citizenship for illegal immigrants. The path to citizenship is stop using the goddamn welfare state. Become model minorities. Be so undeniably positive and vibrant and, and appreciative and thankful and positive to American culture that people will be like rushing to give you, <laughs> give you citizenship and take it away from white trash. I don't know, like, I don't know right? But uh, if you're going to come in and you know, dump kids on a welfare state and and vote against the interests of the the majority productive population, well, uh, you know, the the perception that illegal immigrants have in America is not entirely unrelated to the behavior of illegal immigrants. And, um, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, it's a stupid example, but I remember once... I had a really a great debating partner when I was uh, doing debating way back in the day in college, and I went to the Canadian debating finals, which were held in St. John's, Newfoundland at the time. And I went to stay with uh, a friend of my father's who I actually spent a summer with when I was 16. Uh, he was a great marine biologist, a lot of fun. And we stayed at his place. Um, they gave us hotels, but, you know, we, I chatted with the guy. It's like, oh, let's hang out. It was nice before. And... Um, we went to the airport to try and leave, and the airport was closed. Why? Because it's Newfoundland, which means it's pretty much permanently foggy. The entire, like, this is the island you have no idea if you have cataracts or not, because it's just the way it is. And uh, anyway, so I went back, uh, had, to, had to go back to the guy. And I was like, I was very thankful that he had a place. Like, there were no hotel chits, right? And I was very, very thankful that he had a place for my friend and I to stay. Grateful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This is incredibly kind. Over and above and beyond. I'm very grateful and very thankful for that. And I offered to do the dishes and offered, you know, is there anything I can do? Like, just be someone who people welcome. And um, right now, I'm not entirely positive that a lot of the immigrants who are coming in uh, from the Middle East to Europe or from Mexico or wherever, right? I'm not entirely positive that they're acting in ways that make the majority of people really happy that they're there. All right. But my, I, I definitely understand that. But my, my fundamental argument is that the fact that the welfare exists in the first place is actually the core problem. And if it didn't, then they would have to find jobs and they would have to pay their own way and – Therefore, they would have skin in the game when making government decisions. And but but that they that is the welfare. I, I understand. Wishing it wasn't is like well, you know, if there was if gravity was opposite, we could all fly to the moon. There is the welfare, and what that means is that you are getting a self-selected group of people coming into the country, and we can see from the numbers: illegal immigrants more than twice the welfare consumption 
And do you think that's all there is? Perhaps even more. Almost twice the welfare, con- almost twice the welfare consumption. And so there is a welfare state, which means certain kinds of people are being attracted to that particular situation. Of course, not all. And as a result, you have people who are more dependent on the welfare state than the domestic or legal population. So what are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for more welfare state. Right? So, So saying, well, you know, if we get rid of the welfare state then the illegal immigrants will do hamana, hamana, hamana. It's like, well, the reality is because people follow incentives, if enough people come in who take the welfare state at twice the household per capita population or twice the household ratio of the, the general population, if those people are coming in and digging themselves into the welfare state and voting, they'll vote for policies that extend and expand that welfare state. So the idea that that, well, you know, if we just... If we didn't have the welfare state, then these immigrants would be different. The problem is that statistically, the more illegal immigrants who come into the country in America, the more intractable the welfare state becomes. All right. Well, my my thought was, you know, I mean, we should be fighting that instead of specifically fighting. I mean, because we are justified in trying to fight against the weather. You know, I mean, we're acting in self-defense of our own property when we fight against the welfare state. Oh, yes, but do you understand, do you understand that the immigrants as a whole, the illegal immigrants as a whole, are on the opposite side of you? That's fine. I mean, they don't have a right to take our property, though. No, no, no. You're not understanding. If you want to fight against the welfare state... The more illegal immigrants who come into the country, the less chance you have to get rid of the welfare state. All right. So, I mean, because it seems like the only way to stop immigrants from coming into the country is to have men with guns preventing them from coming into the country. Right. So, I mean, that's fundamentally opposed to, you know, it's, it's not a virtuous way to go about handling a situation is to point men with guns at people who are, you know, mostly trying to, you know, I mean, the ones that are trying to, you know, initiate free trade, and they're they're out there. Well, but, but what I'm saying is that government programs lead to more government programs. I mean, there's no, I mean, this has been a very common reality of public choice theory and Austrian economic theory that more, one government program leads to another government program. You didn't used to have to control immigration nearly as much, if at all, when there was no welfare state. Because people were allowed the right of disassociation in the past. That is the most fundamental right that is being robbed of people. And this is the entire root of the cause of the problem of the welfare state and of immigration. Okay, yeah. That's kind of like So if what I someone comes in, like, let's say that you are some hateful bigot. Not you, but... <laughs> Let's say that someone is some hateful bigot. Okay, so they have the right to not hire Mexicans or they have the right to not hire red-headed gay people or whoever they happen to be prejudiced against, right? Sure. Sure. And we, we have no problem with that fundamentally. The whole point of affirmative action is don't hire white people, particularly white men. Right? So we have no problem with disassociation, with ostracism, with rejection. 
but because because of the welfare state and because of government schools and because of all of the problems of the commons, right? The welfare state is just another giant problem of the commons. But because of all of this, because people do not have the right to discriminate, because people must be forced to pay for other people whose practices and habits they may strongly disagree with. And this happens across all levels of the political spectrum. You know, Catholics are forced to pay for abortion, although they fight against it, and atheists are forced to pay for certain religious practices, uh, particularly tax deductibility of churches and so on. And uh, people who are environmentalists are forced to pay for roads, and people who are vegans are forced to pay for meat subsidies and all of this other stuff that goes wildly against everyone's conscience. And a culture has to work through rejection. And I know this is, this is so foreign a concept, maybe not to you, but, but just to other people. Culture fundamentally is the power of ostracism. And I mean by this beneficial culture, not you know delusory culture or whatever, which is sort of a differentiation I've come to over the last year or two. And so if you don't have the capacity to reject people, then you inevitably have to pile more and more government guns into the inevitable conflicts of interest that arise within society. And the right to reject is the only alternative to government power that exists and will ever, ever exist. The right to reject, the right to ostracize, the right to say no. So if you live in a little town and uh, a family falls on hard times, you'll give them some help. You'll sympathize. But you'll be aware that you don't want to create dependence. Right? Charity is like morphine. Yeah, it's good in an extremity, but it's not something you want to end up really habituated to. Otherwise, you end up as Martha Henry in a Stratford play. Long day's journey in tonight. Everyone should read it. But um, so in this small town, everybody kind of knows each other and they'll help each other out. But then if they feel that they're being abused, if they feel that people are just not working when they could or, or you know, the guy just takes the charity and goes down to the pub and drinks all day and, and has a blast and plays pool and foosball and <laughs> air hockey and stuff, right? Well, then people are going to be like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is for. This is for people who need help, not for people who don't feel like working. So you have the right of ostracism. You have the right to give people charity and you have the right to withdraw it if they offend your sensibilities. Now, the degree to which government comes in and crowds that out is the degree to which people forget that that works incredibly well because we're a social and tribal species and we need each other to survive and therefore ostracism is very powerful because it signifies either individual rejection from a tribe, which usually meant death, or gene death insofar as if the women all reject you, you can't have kids and your genes die with you. And so the welfare state breaks the benevolent power of ostracism which would be how a free society would self-regulate immigration. Let's say there was, I'm not going to, no statistics to back anything up in particular, but let's just say there were a population of green-haired people who lived next to where your society lived. And, um, you know, these green-haired people would come into your society and they were just really difficult. They, they, they fought 
they they drank, they fathered illegitimate children, they kept crowding on your private and voluntary charities, and they would uh, they had weird rituals where they nailed goat hides to trees, they littered like crazy, they they played Credence Clearwater Revival at two o'clock in the morning at Volume Eleven, they were just universally not <laughs> great, right? Well, I mean, if you have the right to ostracize, great. Uh, then these people will come flowing into your society, and people won't want to rent them a room, and people won't want to sell them groceries, and people won't like. Then they got to go home. You can't survive without the voluntary participation of people in a civilized society, or any society for that matter. And so, by breaking the power of ostracism, we end up with a wildly escalating and oscillating series of pendulum-style exaggerated government responses. Oh, because of the, because there's a welfare state. Well, well, now we need control over the immigration of the borders, and we got to round people up and send them out. It's like, and I get it. Yeah, let's you know, if you didn't have the welfare state, but the problem is these people are generally voting for the welfare state, like four to one. So please understand, I don't have any policy answers. Like everyone's like, yeah, well, what's your answer? It's like, well, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not into short-term policy answers any more than a nutritionist is really great at giving you a tracheotomy. Right? I mean, that's not my business. My business is to point out the moral problems with all the solutions. And people say, ah, well, you see, but it's the initiation of force to prevent people from coming across a, uh, a country, uh, a country border and so on. Yeah, okay. But it's the initiation of force when they get here and go on welfare. And the, it's the initiation of force largely against children and the unborn who are going to be responsible for the massive debts that these people are incurring through the welfare state and through the printing of money and through the selling of bonds and through the deferral of debt payments. So there's no, there's no answer that's moral in this situation. Yeah, I guess that was kind of what my question was, is, you know, how do we justify that because people are pointing guns at us and saying, give us your money so that we can give it to the other people. Therefore, we need to point guns at other people. It seems really hard to justify. And, you know, where do you draw the line? But you see, you just you need to go and talk like I don't know why people are bothering so much about. About America in this situation. Right. I mean, I, I, you know that. Guns and a giant wall is what keeps Israel, Israel, right? And you know that if you try to emigrate to Mexico, they'll basically stick you in a giant confetti cannon and fire you back over whatever border you came from. And if you want to try and go and immigrate into Japan, right, they will tie you to the bottom of a boat and <laughs> send you back over the Sargasso Sea, right? So I, it's weird to me that, that since all countries are highly restrictive in their immigration policies for the most part, except for the Western countries, are pretty open. And only the Western countries get criticized for their immigration policies. You never, ever, ever see, well, okay, you know, there's a, a porous border on the south of America, but heaven's sakes, I mean, God, do you know that in, you know, in, 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 um, in Israel, they're, they're paying the, the North African Jewish population to leave the country and to take birth control? And, and so this idea that somehow we've got to really focus our exquisitely sensitive moral outrage on the most porous border in the world, you could argue, 
yeah, try, you know, if you're not currently on the run from the American government, if, if Sarah Palin is not hot on your trail with a goddamn blow dart and a blowtorch and a spear fishing gun, a.k.a. if you're not Edward Snowden, yeah, kind of tough to immigrate into Russia. So this idea that we've got this exquisite moral sensitivity when it comes to America, I mean, we just, we just got to be honest and say, well, it's not so much the borders. I just don't like, I don't want to run the risk of being called racist. Well, it's not really that for me. I mean, personally, I think I see a border as an artificial line that protects us from competition. Because, you know, I mean, we have export, you know, import taxes, which protect us from having to compete with other countries. And then we have a line that says, if you cross this, you can't come, you're not supposed to come and work in our country. Therefore, we don't have to compete with the workers from those countries. And, you know, I mean, fundamentally in a, you know, a purely voluntary society, that line wouldn't exist. And I certainly I don't know why you're saying the same thing over and over again, like I've not said anything whatsoever. Of course, these imaginary lines don't exist. I mean, yeah, but you're just saying the same thing over and over again, right? Well, that's why I'm talking to an anarchist, so I accept that these. My question is, where's your outrage against Israel? Much, much more strict border controls than anything could ever be imagined. Oh, that's certainly fair. In the European countries or in the North American countries. I I have a lot of problems with Israel. Okay, so. Do you have a lot of problems with Mexico's very strict immigration policies? Certainly. Okay, good. Well, then I, I would just suggest, you know, in the, in the sort of the interest of fairness, that you spend a little bit of time talking about, say, the non-white countries. Because it just seems a little bit, because white people are kind of sensitive and they kind of care about uh, uh, multiculturalism and so on, it just kind of seems like everybody's picking on the white countries. I got to be frank with you. I mean, I'm just telling you. This is how it appears to me. I'm not saying this is sort of fundamental proof to all of this. But white countries are the most porous and accept the most immigrants of any countries around the world. And it is generally only the white countries that people bitch at about immigration and, and borders. You understand that there's no proportionality to your criticisms if you're going to focus on the Mexican-American border and America's attempts to stem the flow of uh, illegal immigration, that there's no proportionality to this. Like, literally, you're stepping over someone strangling a hobo in order to get angry at somebody who might be double-parked and claiming that you're somehow being objectively moral in your outrage. Well, no, that's a fair point. I mean... Try any country. Try, try going to emigrate to South Korea. Try go emigrate permanently to China. Way, way more restrictive. The Western countries accept by far the most immigrants. And I swear to God, it's like, it's like the whole world is simply training sensitive t- people to stop being sensitive. Because right now, I got to tell you, right now, it pretty much seems that everyone's banging on the white people and on the white countries, and dogging on the white people in the white countries. Why? Not out of any objective moral sense, because when it comes to immigration, white countries would be the ones you would criticize the least out of all of history. But simply because 
it works. And because the white people tug their forelocks and bow down and say, okay, uh, I'll give away the entire culture, the whole history, just don't call me a racist. <laughs> right? If you have any objective, if you have any objective moral outrage towards borders and immigration and efforts to protect the way of life of the host country, the last countries you would ever talk about would be North American and European countries, ever, because they are so far at the bottom of the list of unjust immigration policies or unfair by any standard. By the initiation of force, they are so far so far down on the list that the fact that they're always getting picked on, despite the fact that they are by far the most generous countries to to emigrate to legally or illegally, makes no sense whatsoever. And it just looks like picking on people who are sensitive to the issue. I mean, if you go and talk to Japan and say, "Hey, Japan, you need to take in eight hundred thousand Muslims," you know what they say to you? Uh, well, certainly we don't have a right to tell somebody they need to do something. You're not understanding what I'm saying. If you go, they, they to, a Japanese, it, you go to Japanese people or the Japanese government and say, you all need to take in 800,000 Muslims. They'd oppose it. They would, like, they would laugh at you. Yeah. In fact, the Eastern European countries who labored under Muslim rule under the Ottomans and other countries who labored under Muslim rule for hundreds of years, they're saying, back off. Go to Mexico and say, you need to open your borders to everyone else. They'll laugh at you. And so if you are really concerned about the initiation of force to protect a geographical area, the last place you would go to criticize would be Western countries, white countries. Well... <laughs> For now, white countries. I mean, it would make no sense. It would make no sense at all. It, you're basically like saying, well, I'm really against alcoholism, and there are 14 guys ODing and dying from alcohol poisoning in a gutter, and you're stepping over for one guy who's having his first sherry of the week and knocking it out of his hand and screaming outrage. Well, I mean, we have the most control over what we do in America. I mean, we can send, we cannot send money to Israel, and that would probably... You know, help that a lot. Which ah, obviously. you see. Okay, fine. So now you're looking for efficacy. You're saying, well, you know, this is where we have the most control. Okay, then fine. Then say that and say it's got nothing to do with principles. Well, I mean, also— I'm just uh, nagging the people who are stuck in my house. It's got <laughs> nothing to do with principles, right? Because if you're saying, well, we have to do that which is most effective, that which works the best, and it's not about principle— then you have to accept that a, a population that consumes welfare at more than twice the rate of the domestic population is not people that you want in if you want to get rid of the welfare state because now we're talking about effect and control. If you want the U.S. voters to ever reject the welfare state, you've got to keep illegal immigrants from Mexico and from Central and Southern America out of the country if all you're doing is focusing on effect and control and that which can be achieved. And if you're not throwing out principle, then the Western countries should nowhere be on your list of things to criticize. Because they're so far down the list of egregious control of foreigners coming into a country. Like, if you're with principle, you go yell at North Korea, you go yell at Russia, you go yell at Japan, and you go do all of that shit. And then in you know, 500 years, you can come and nag European countries and North American countries. If you're into principle, then you've got to focus on those who are most egregiously violating the principle. And if you're not into principle, then you've got to keep the illegal immigrants out because the effect will be that you'll never get rid of the welfare state. 
Well, based on the principle, yes, okay, we never get rid of the welfare state, but if we were able to get rid of the welfare state first and then only had <laughs> only had high-quality immigrants coming in because we're not giving them free things, so the ones that are willing to work, willing to volunteer, and we have you know the capability to ostracize them, then we benefit as a country because – Oh, come on. But you're, you're, you're fairy-tailing. You're talking about a fairy You're standing beneath a giant dam that is cracking and bursting with water overhead and is about to drown and deluge your entire town. And you're saying, well, you see, if there was no water on the other side of the dam, this would be an entirely different situation. Yes. It is, it is an it's ideology. a non-existent situation because we've got to deal with the fact of what's happening. It is an ideology, but should we not pursue the ideology? I mean, that's where we want to be eventually. Okay, you tell not? me, tell me how you get rid of, and look, I'm open to this, right? I mean, if there's something I haven't thought of, Lord knows that's more than possible. <laughs> tell me, please, how do you get people to vote away the welfare state who are more than twice as likely as the domestic population to be dependent on the welfare state? I suppose What's you don't. I mean, until well, it's more than suppose. And until there's like an economic collapse because the weight of the whole system. Right, and then the economic collapse happens, and you have a whole bunch of low-skilled, no work ethic people in the country who get disproportionately hit by the end of the gravy train. And then what happens? Would you rather, like, when the government runs out of money, do you want more people on welfare? Or less people, fewer people on welfare in the country? No, nobody on welfare. No, you're not hearing. This is like, what if there was no water on the other side of the dam? When the government runs out of money, do you, would you rather have more oh, or fewer people on the welfare state? Fewer. Okay. So then we're in agreement. As far as the, again, I'm not talking policy. I'm just talking about the practicalities of the situation. I don't. I don't do political policy. Okay. But what I'm saying is that if, since the government is going to run out of money, and if you agree that it's better to have fewer people dependent on the welfare state in the country when the government runs out of money, then that's a case to be made for blocking illegal immigration. Now, if you want the government to run out of money quicker, <laughs> then that's a case for, yeah, let's bring them all in. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a fair point. And people say, oh, well, you, Steph, you've got to have your principles. It's the initiation of force to prevent people from coming across the border. There's no moral answer to this situation because the initiation of force is going to happen no matter what. Right? This is not a situation where you can come up with an ethical answer. Because... You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. There's initiation of force if people come across the border and go disproportionately on welfare. That is the initiation of force against the domestic population. And it's the initiation of force to prevent them from coming in. Yay, statism! This is why I'm an anarchist. because <laughs> Otherwise, you end up with these constant no-win situations where everyone's around bleating about, well, let's do the right thing. It's not possible to do the right thing in this environment. This is why statism is so toxic. But we can look at the consequences of various decisions, for sure. We can certainly say it's generally worse for the country when the government runs out of money if there are more people on welfare, which is a strike one against 
illegal immigration from South of America. And strike two is that given that illegal immigrants don't seem to have much trouble voting and they're going to continue to vote for it. A path to citizenship is a path to more and more people coming in for the welfare state, which will bankrupt the country, which will be ghastly. See, when a crisis hits a country, people of a common culture will pull together. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about the ideal 500 years in the future if we all work really bloody hard kind of world that we could have. I'm talking about the world that exists right now. Right now, human beings are fundamentally tribal. And when the shit hits the fan, the more culturally diverse a country, the worse it will be. Because it's one thing to sacrifice for your own tribe, which most human societies are very willing to do. It's one thing to sacrifice for your own tribe. It's another thing to be forced to sacrifice your tribe for someone else's. And this, you know, people might get mad at me about this because, I don't know, they hate evolution. Evolution, fundamentally, is preference for gene proximity. That's all it is. Without preference for gene proximity, evolution doesn't work. We would not be here. Nothing would be here. No one would be here. The primordial soup would still be single-celled organisms having the worst orgy known to biology. Gene proximity is foundational to evolution. If you don't prefer your own genes and the genes who are similar to you, evolution in no way, shape, or form works. And that primitive aspect to human nature, which I have warned about repeatedly in this show, particularly when it comes to the European migrant crisis, it's buried by a lot of nicey-nicey stuff. Ooh, I like sombreros, and, and guacamole is tasty, And oh my, don't I love a good curry. And I do too. (laughs) Absolutely. Music and food (laughs) does not redeem the rest of it as far as multiculturalism goes. But when the shit hits the fan, people will go ferocious gene proximity preference. Whether it's rational or not. Listen, when when the Germans felt that the Jews, who were not gene proximity people, when the Germans felt that the Jews were taking over their country and stabbed them in the back through the... Balfour Declaration at the end of World War I and we're bringing communism into the country and like when they right? I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying these are the facts of biology. You know Siegfried or Roy or whichever one had their (laughs) got attacked by that tiger, had that tiger for, I don't know, 10, 20 years. You know what? It's still a tiger. You know my... (laughs) My daughter was like, Dad, can we get a wolf for a pet? (laughs) No. (laughs) Why? It's always going to be a wolf. (laughs) And it doesn't have the 6,000 years of neoteny infantilization that the breeding of wolves into dogs has had. No, we can't. Because when push comes to shove, it's still a wolf. And it's still a tiger. And human beings are tribal predators. And you can push it down a lot and you can shame people. Oh, it doesn't get rid of human nature. Just bottles it up until it comes out in ways that are shocking and ugly to anybody who doesn't know the first damn thing about biology and history. So if we want to begin to limit the power of the state and we wish to do this in a multicultural environment, we're going to have to pick one. Because people say, oh, you know, well, the... 
the northern, the Scandinavian countries, and Sweden, and Denmark, and all that, they're all so successful. Well, okay, maybe they're successful because they're gene homogenous to a large degree, or, or were <laughs> until relatively recently. Because it's really hard to shame people from outside your tribe. I mean, let's talk about that with the first caller, right? So it's really hard to shame people outside of your tribe. And, and we can think of six million different evolutionary reasons why this would be the case. And listen, I, I think it's one of the great tragedies of life. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, you know, the kumbaya, we're all in this together. There's no such thing as, as ethnic differences. There's no such thing as genetic differences. That, man, I wish that were the case. God damn. I wish that, you know, when, when Kathy Reichs from, from Bones uh, looked at a corpse, she said, well, I don't know, male or female, Caucasian, Asian, tall, I have no idea. Nope. One glance. <laughs> And the skeletons are different. And uh, I would like it if it wasn't the case. But, um, you know, if wishes were horses, beggars would write. We have to deal with what is. And the process of dismantling the state is going to be enormously impeded by significant multiculturalism. And by multiculturalism, again, I'm not talking about I like this flute and you like that didgeridoo. I'm talking about very foundational differences about the role of the state in society. And like it or not, it is Western society that has led the way, for the most part, in general, both theoretically and practically, has led the way in diminishing the power of the state. There was no Mexican revolution that ended up with a tiny government as in 1776. For, you know, and, and I have skepticism about some aspects of the story. It's not particularly important right now. There was a theoretical framework that culminated in that. In that if you look at the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, it was night and day. If you look at the difference between the American Revolution and the Russian Revolution of 1917, night and day. You know, white, candy-assed, overly freckled, blue-eyed, blonde, Western European dudes in general are the ones who have dragged mankind kicking and screaming to the altar of small government. Not Mexico. Not Nicaragua. Not Panama. Not South Korea, not Japan. It's just the reality. You can't wish it away. I mean, because you can, but then you're just driving blind, flying blind. And it's, it's hard enough even to get people who've got a strong cultural tradition of small government to even talk about small government, let alone no government. It's true. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I went down to Brazil a couple of years ago, gave some speeches, some wonderful... Brazilians down there loved chatting with them, loved meeting with them. Big libertarian movement in Brazil? No. This is not even getting into IQ differences. So, you know, I, I have the idealistic side and I have the, uh, the side that um, wants to live in the platonic world of perfect ethics and, and winsome choices that aren't ungodly compromises. I, I do, and I have that aspect, and that's, that's the part of me, that's the part of my brain that I ferociously exercise during the writing of books like Universally Preferable Behavior or Practical Anarchy or Everyday Anarchy. That is the crystalline abstraction and goal and destination of where we want to go and how we want to live in the future. And then there's another side of me, which is a kick-ass, it's cold outside, get me a sweater, Lockean empiricist. Which is, okay, that is the crystalline perfect platonic structure of where we want to get to in the future. 
and here's where we are now. And in the future, after the dam bursts, maybe there won't be water on the other side of the dam, but right now there is. And if we ignore it, all we do is drown. I got to move on to the next caller, but I really, really appreciate your call. Thank all you. Right, for thank you. Me. Thanks, man. All right. Well, up next is Daniel. Daniel writes in and says, if an 11-year-old boy shoots and kills his 8-year-old neighbor girl because she would not let him see her new puppy, should the father of the boy be sent to prison for murder? This is an actual event that happened just a few days ago and was the topic on our local talk radio station. Assuming the boy is otherwise quote-unquote normal, in general I think he should be put away for good unless he's taking some sort of SSRI drugs. Perhaps the father has been a bad parent, but also perhaps not and the kid just went crazy. My position is the father should not legally be held responsible for his child's actions. What do you think? Yeah, I read about this. Um, do you want to mention anything more just to sort of flesh it out for people who may not have Google at their fingertips? Well, it's been about a month by now, and, and uh, I have emotionally calmed down after listening to the talk radio show discuss this. All the callers calling in have their opinion. They're generally all saying the same thing and and I was really passionate on the subject and I you know I was I wanted to talk to you that day and, and hear your opinion just to have someone else N normally you and I agree on practically everything um, and the fact that I was invited to talk to you today I'm a little bit nervous that uh, you're up for a debate um, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll agree right Who knows? perhaps we'll agree yes I'm, I'm hoping um, but it, it doesn't either way. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I'm glad you invited me and thank you very much. But um, so the little boy uh, wanted to see the little girl's puppy. She said no. And then what did he go home and get a gun? Was it premeditated? I mean, how did we didn't I assume he didn't have a gun on him or something? Well, he, this is a, a trailer home park and they, they have some videos you can watch online to um, see the window. She was shot through the window. He was inside the trailer, and she was outside uh, with the pup, one of her girlfriends. And he had, I'm assuming, through the window, can I see your puppy? And she said no. And um, then within seconds, I guess, the shot went through the window and hit her and killed her. And... Um, show on the videos you online you can see the the broken window and the reporters walking around the, the yard outside the trailer and that's about all they say so it, it, as far as was it premeditated I mean if, if it happened as the reporters say you know the, the gun would have been close by um, the sheriff report in, in what's published online says that the the gun was kept in a closet unlocked and that's what a lot of the people were hitting on. That's you know a lot of the callers in the local talk radio show here were talking about that fact. The father, you know, should be in prison just for keeping the gun unlocked. And um, we can set up all kinds of different scenarios, but that you know anything more, I would just be taking guesses. Right. Right. And what you said, most people who were called into the radio show had similar opinions and what were their opinions most of them would would be calling in because they were angry that the boy had access i hate that word access to a firearm and that uh, firearms a firearm should all be locked the father is totally responsible he should not even have a gun in the house 
you know, with children there. And a lot of the, you know, the anti-gun people were doing most of the calling in. I, I'd say out of, you know, the 15 callers in the afternoon, only two, I was one of them, called in and basically said, look, you know, there are, you know, unfortunate incidents like this when you have a, you know, society with guns, you know, and, you know, you only have a few minutes to talk, but, um, this, this doesn't, you know, this one event doesn't mean you're better off without any guns. Um, same. Oh, no, no, of course not. No, I mean, I, you know, I get that. This is not a, a gun control issue for me. Uh, the question more, more fundamentally is who should be charged, right? Yeah, they, you know, a lot of people weren't even talking about the boy. No questions were asked, you know, was he mentally stable? Were there previous incidents? Was he not? Well, know, no, there, clearly he wasn't mentally stable. If, if right. he feels that if he can't get a puppy, he can shoot a gun. Whether he aimed or not, I don't know. I mean, but, but the reality is that if you have, you know, let's just, take the kid out of the situation for a moment. So let's say that I have a dog and um, I torture the dog and I starve the dog and I beat the dog and I chain the dog up and I freak the dog out. And then I turn the dog loose into a playground and the dog bites the kid. Who's responsible? Well, that's, that's, that's what's going through my head. You know, I can think of scenarios where I would want to personally kill the father if he trained the kid to kill, you know, in that manner. But, you know, most likely, and this is just a guess, you know, the kid is just a nutcase. And he, wait, wait, know, wait, he, wait, hang on, hang on. Where do, you, where do you jump to the kid's just a nutcase? What, that doesn't explain anything. How do you know he's a nutcase? Well, he did nutty things. Well, that's a tautology, right? I mean, so he does nutty things and you call him a nutcase, but you haven't, you haven't added anything to the equation, right? That's correct. But my first thoughts are, and I put myself in a situation, if my kid um, were to do something like that, I feel that I've been responsible, but I would get the same treatment from the callers. I would be, you know, hearing, you're a bad father, you're a bad, you know, person in this society, shouldn't have left the guns unlocked, and, you know, I've done everything. Well, again, let's stay off the guns for a second, because that's a sort of separate issue. Right. But, um, maybe he was a bad father. Right, and I, I mentioned it. Maybe, maybe he was. Um, now, if he was a bad father, I mean, if he tortured and brutalized and, you know, let's just take ridiculous extremes that are obviously are purely theoretical, you know, like if he, if he pimped his kid out to pedophiles for five bucks and a, a, you know, a six-pack, then clearly, uh, you know, the kid was, was driven crazy by uh, endless amounts of abuse. And uh, as a result, then um, the father would be responsible for the uh, actions of the child, right? I, I agree with that, and you know, you know that doesn't mean that you can let the kid free either. That's another problem I have. But you know, well, I, he, yeah, I don't know. You know how, how this is solved in terms of you know, is there any amount of therapy or or whatever it is that that could? I don't know. I mean, that that would be a you know for recidivists and criminal psychologists and all that to to figure out. I don't know, but um, yeah, you would you would have to do a significant investigation into how the child how the child was treated. Right. You would immediately um, you'd freeze the crime scene and you would go in and you would look for evidence of uh, of abuse. And you would check out the medical records of the kid and see if he'd ended up in hospital with uh, unexpected or unexplained broken bones. And you would check to see whether the kid was in school and you'd talk to the teachers and you'd talk to. And, and if the child had a history of violence, 
then the father is responsible. Because if, if my dog goes crazy and bites people in my house, and I know that, then I let that kid out unsupervised, let that dog out unsupervised. Yeah, I, I know that they know that my dog is violent. I let that dog go run around in a playground. Even if I didn't cause the violence of the dog, let's just say the dog has a brain tumor. It's eating away its neofrontal cortex or whatever the hell keeps dogs from turning into wolves, and he's gone all wolfy. He's gone full lycanthrope, right? So if I know that the dog is violent and bites people, even if I didn't cause it, I'm still responsible for releasing it into a playground, right? Boy, I can't argue with anything you've said, but none of the callers calling in would, would you know, elaborate like that. They would just, boy, jump on that gun issue and assume that the father, I mean, but, but you're 100% right. Everything you just laid out, I agree with. Um, if it's presented If the kid had like some, that, I'm sorry, if the, the, only, the only way that the father could not be charged, in my humble opinion, or whatever the equivalent would be in a free society, but the only way that the, the father would not be charged would be if it turned out that the child had some sudden onset, undiagnosed personality altering medical condition. Again, some brain tumor or whatever it was, some, some, some lesion, some hemorrhage, some aneurysm that cut off, whatever, and lost his seat of reasoning and became feral. If there was some completely undiagnosed, no history of violence, then it's like, wow, that's terrible. You had epilepsy right at the cliff edge and you fell off. That's really tragic and awful all around. But that would be the case. And now I consider that to be so highly unlikely that, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, I, uh, I don't need to save any money because I'm just going to play the lottery. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it could be, but I wouldn't put any money on it at all. The kids don't, like, people don't just, just, people don't just shoot people. People like murderers don't just pop, oh, had a bad day, got out of, I got out of bed on the wrong side, and next thing you know, I'm shooting people, right? I mean, I did a um, video a couple of years ago called How to Make a Monster, which went into the history of a school shoot, of a mall shooter in the U.S. and everything that led up. You know, we did it with Dylan Roof, and, and we did it with, um, Elliot Roger, and we've done it with a bunch of other shooters. They don't, they don't just appear out of nowhere. Got a whole free audio book written by Lloyd DeMoss called The History, The Origins of War in Child Abuse, which you can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. And uh, check, this, this does not come out of nowhere. You know, there is um, uh, something called the warrior gene. Which is, we're just working on a presentation about that. And the warrior gene is associated with I won't get into the mechanics of it, but it's associated with significantly higher levels of aggression. And if you combine the warrior gene with good parenting, well, you get a nice person who, you know, may be a little bit more assertive than normal, but that's okay. <laughs> we can have we can have people with three balls walking around to society. They still have a place to sit. However, if you take people who have particularly the two-repeat version of this gene, if you take those kids and you expose them to child abuse they are 10 times more likely to become aggressive if you don't have these genes and you are exposed to child abuse you don't become that aggressive right i mean i hope this explains some mysteries to people as to why you know oh my brother and i went through the same childhood but he became like this criminal and I became a non-criminal, well, 
Some of it has to do with the luck of the draw genetically. Maybe he had this double allele of the warrior gene, which meant that if he's exposed to child abuse, he's got a 10 times higher likelihood to become aggressive. And maybe you didn't have this, so no amount of child abuse was going to turn you that way. But that's, this shouldn't be considered determinism at all, because nobody knows ahead of time. You know, some people can smoke like chimneys their whole lives and never get sick. Other people have like 12 cigarettes and their head explodes, right? Some people can eat really badly and be overweight and, and live to be like 80, and other people uh, drop dead of a heart attack uh, when they're running their 14th marathon at the age of 12. I don't know, right? So we don't know ahead of time, which is why we have to deal with things ethically. So I would, you know, again, if I was a betting man, and I can't because betting is too much fun <laughs> to stay away from the tables. But um, if I was a betting man, the amount of money that I'd put on some undiagnosed sudden onset medical condition that turned the kid feral, I wouldn't put, a, I wouldn't put one thin dime of somebody else's money on that. Um, I'm, no. you know, I'd be almost certain I, I that either. we would look at the parenting. But the, the, you know, the fact that there are remotely unlikely scenarios where it is possible—maybe he had a friend that got him hooked on crack cocaine at age 11. There are possibilities that you know. Wait, hang on. Are you saying that's got nothing to do with parenting? It has a lot to do. I mean, actually, I'm very uh, much um, from the point of view that the, the, the whole problem with America is is the lack of parenting. I think if you got down to having a good um, set of parents in a house, 90% of the, you know, America's problems would go away. Uh, you know, so I, 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 I'm, I'm an engineer, so I, I <laughs> there are possibilities. There, there's just the fact I get so, I got so angry that day that everyone was calling in without discussing it like you've just laid out that, yeah, 99.9% .9 of the chances this is going to be a result of some kind of abuse or unhealthy situation that the kid's been put in at home. Um, but, boy, why not mention that? Well, you know, they, they immediately went to the guns, and then that, that got me angry. So I immediately would take the opposite stance. Well, maybe it's, you know, possible. It's possible that it was just uh, maybe he... Uh, was influenced by friends at school or abused by a teacher or another person of the community that, that got him this way. Not likely. Still, look, that's still, the, that's still the parent's responsibility. It's still the parent's responsibility. Look, you're in charge of your children's mental health until they turn 18. You are in charge of your children's mental health until they turn 18. It doesn't matter. Well, some kid got him addicted to cocaine. It's like, well, why the hell is he interested in cocaine to begin with? Why the hell is that kid around? Why doesn't the parent know that this is a bad kid? Why doesn't the parent know that the kid's on drugs? Why doesn't, the, oh, he got abused by a teacher. Well, why didn't he come home and say to his parents, I was abused by a teacher. You got to do something. And why don't the parents move heaven and earth, do whatever it takes to keep the kid out of the power, control, or orbit of that teacher? Like, I'm sorry, that there's, there's nothing that can happen. The parents are in charge of the mental health of the child until the child is an adult. So there's some outside influence that could happen. Sorry, you're the parent. You're the filter. You're the person who is responsible for keeping your kids safe. Well, why does it end when it's 18? You know, why not? Well, whatever the adult's thing is, because at some point there's moral autonomy, right? Yeah. At some point you graduate from... <laughs> Grade three, and you go to grade four, right? You don't stay in grade three forever, and you don't stay in moral dependence forever. Is this personal to you in some way? Is this uh, no, not at all. Uh, you have, not at all. Okay, just wanted to check.
Because you seem to be bothered by some of this perspective. Yeah, I mean, we, the, the last point you brought up, you know, the, when you turn this magical age of 18, all of a sudden, boom, all the rules change. Or if it's an, like an adopted son versus a, you know, maternal son versus a, maybe a, uh, a guardian situation, you know, all, all these. Um, I, you're I, all still responsible. Listen, let's say that there's some kid who had fetal alcohol syndrome and, and has... I think one of the uh, kids of one of the prime ministers of Canada, Jean Chrétien, he adopted a kid, if I remember rightly. Uh, this is off the top of my head, so please go and check it yourself if you're more interested. Kid had fetal alcohol syndrome, got into lots of trouble. Okay. This kid has fetal alcohol syndrome, and he's going to get into lots of trouble, which means that you as a parent are responsible for that child's damage in society because you know that he can be dangerous. Which means, like it or not, you have to be out there with your kid when he's playing with other kids and hovering over and making sure he doesn't get too aggressive. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the job. Yeah. Mike checked and said that the boy came from a family with six children. They cannot say if he had any mental problems right now, but DCS is investigating. But um, we won't know for some time, and we may never know. Because, you know, you're not one of them, but there are a lot of guilty parents out there who don't like this idea. And, and when their kids go off the rails, which to some degree, uh, you know, you can listen to some of my interviews with the experts for some other perspective, but to some degree, kids who, uh, who go off the rails, I believe, go off the rails as a result of child abuse. And is it all kids? I don't know. Is everyone who goes to jail guilty well far from it even by current legal standards but um i don't know but that's the first place to look and uh in my and and, and a lot of times when people start to talk about you know like the parents of shooters it's weird like they're portrayed as victims like it just it just happened to them they just they had a bad seed or maybe this is what religion does for some people is abusive parents get to blame. I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you're abusive. I'm not saying you would take this approach, of course, right? But, but uh, you know, some parents take the, uh, well, you see, he was a great kid. But the devil, the devil made him do it. Ah. And, um, but the reality is that uh, if, uh, if the kid goes off the rails, somebody was driving the train. And it either happened over time, in which case the parent is responsible for the protection of the other children in the neighborhood, or it happened really suddenly, which is very, very unusual. And, um, you know, I mean, with all the shooters we've looked into, yeah, there were signs, <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah, I, I bet you there were signs. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure that 99.9, I just... I, I, feel vulnerable when I when I think about it from the way you've laid it out uh, that you know my say my child turns 17 and I, they you know have you know I refuse to let them do something and then they for revenge want to send dad to jail they go out and do something crazy um, that's not this man that's not going to happen out of nowhere I'm telling you I'm telling you that doesn't just happen. Oh, okay, teenagers, you know, they're not always uh, making the very best decisions in the world and so on. But this, this does not just happen out of nowhere. You keep the lines of communication open. You are available to help problem solve. You are a genuine, warm, 
and and safe and motivating inspiration to virtue and communication in their lives and you give them as much flexibility and freedom as you can and you're there to support them and be a soft place for them to land they're not going to say oh I'm mad at dad because he wouldn't do X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to just go out and commit a crime. Right? Come on. Look, and you're a smart guy, too, and, uh, you know, like it or not, um, the sweet spot for criminality is uh, between 80 and 90 IQ. Tragically. And again, most people who have 80 to 90 IQ are perfectly peaceful, and there's certainly criminals elsewhere in the, in the intelligence spectrum, but the cluster of criminality is around 80 to 90 IQ. And, um, you know, obviously that's significantly genetic, though not entirely. And, uh, you know, if you've got smart kids uh, and you've been a decent parent, no, perfect, who knows what that even means. But if you've got smart kids and you've been a decent parent, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't really feel, feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, I but it, in, a, in, a, in a way, it, it's... But talk to your kids about your vulnerabilities. Right? Don't wait for anything to happen, you and my suggestion, my, if you can't be open within your family, who can you be open with? If you can't talk to your family about your hopes and fears, who can you talk to? Sit down with your kids. If you've got a son who's in his teenage years, sit down with him and say, can I tell you the crazy thought that's been rolling around and around in my head? It's driving me crazy. Like the idea that you're just going to suddenly go off the rails is terrifying to me. I look at these other parents, these other kids. I is there, you know, where are you at? And, you know, I mean, you don't have to comfort me or anything because I'm still the dad. I'm supposed to be in charge. But I really wanted to be honest about some of the fears that I have about you in the world. Some of my friends growing up, you know, who I assumed had normal, healthy homes, you know, went off the rails. And I'm like, wow, where, that came out of nowhere. Um, boy, it, 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 I've seen a couple of my friends uh, go through that. It seems as though it could happen to the best of homes. But maybe, you know, I don't, I, maybe I didn't know the circumstances of their home life, just their, you know, facade at school. Well, of course, the, um, the parents, if the parents, are, and this is not, right, I get that this is sort of a circular argument, but the motive is very clear that if the parents were abusive, then they have every incentive to portray themselves as innocent in this matter. I mean, every significant incentive from every conceivable angle. And so, um, but I, I don't believe, I've been having conversations with Mike Cross about this uh, years ago. I, I don't believe that, you know, if you see a kid with a broken arm, something or someone broke it. He didn't just wake up with it spontaneously shattered. Right, and, and if there's a kid with a broken mind, something or someone shattered it. Now, obviously, if you have some god-awful bone-eating cancer or something like that, then yeah, you, you, you've got to... But that's very rare. <laughs> I think that the mind is broken by people. And um, there are exceptions. You can't make a blanket statement about it. Very yeah, common. I tend to do that. I tend to... When I hear the word, is it possible, you know, on a, on a test in college, is it, po you know, well, geez, in an animated cartoon, anything's possible. So I get, I get put off guard or, you know, tilted one way as soon as I hear that. And yeah, it is very remotely, un it's, it's not likely, I, I've never run into in my life um, where a scenario like this turns out to be a freak, um, um, you know, there's there's something not underlying like a bad uh, abusive home or something. You're right, but when I hear the, you know, 
the word, is it possible that this kid had an otherwise normal home life and just went crazy? Well, yeah, but I, I agree with everything you've said. I don't have... Uh, but even, even if they went crazy, it's still the parent's responsibility, right? You don't just, as a parent, you don't get to say, well, my kids are acting erratically and is, you know, skinning rabbits and, and you know, stapling them to little girls' dresses and he's keying cars and, you know, he's, he's peeing in people's uh, Cheerios and you say, well, you know, I guess we just got a bad kid. It's, you still got to do something, right? You're still responsible for the safety of other people in your kid's environment. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying if they had a tumor, they, they woke up one morning and had a cancerous tumor that caused their brain to malfunction. That's 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 a scenario. Yeah, I uh, I got to tell you, I've looked into this stuff for many years, many years, and you know, obviously, I'm not an expert, but I've not found one case where some kid went haywire and what do you know, they had a brain tumor. Not found one. I'm sure it's out there. Haven't found one. You know, I mean, you, you know, when you hear someone died of lung cancer, you think smoker, right? Although, you know, what is it? A couple of percentage points of lung cancers are not caused by smoking. Andy Kaufman died of that, if I remember rightly. He wasn't a smoker. So, you know, you hear lung cancer, you think smoker. Doesn't mean you're 100% right, but it's not a bad first guess. And, you yeah, know, you can look at my interview with Dr. Kevin Beaver. We have some great criminologists on this show. I've never seen the, well, you know, remember that 25% of criminals have brain lesions and brain tumor. Like, there's nothing like that. It's there's no, um, well, it's, 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 it's not that, <laughs> whatever it is, right? I, I think it's, I think it's a combination, and, and this is not more than I think. The evidence is, my friend, that it's a combination of bad parenting and unfortunate genes, and bombing the brain, you know, people can go through that sequence of uh, presentations, uh, still some of the most important stuff I've ever done. But um, it's a combination of bad environment plus bad genes. And um, because we don't know the genes of our kid, we need to provide the best possible environment. I mean, you know, it'd be, be shitty if you, you know, oh, my kid doesn't have any of the worry. Let's take a simple example. My kid doesn't have any of the warrior genes, so I don't need to give a shit about them. I can hit them all over the place and I can push them downstairs and they're never going to become criminals. I almost don't want parents to know this stuff, so to speak, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't, don't test for the warrior gene. And please, this is not a one-size-fits-all explanation for everything to do with this stuff. But you don't know what kind of kid you're going to have. You don't know what random pop-ups you're getting in the genetic sphere, you don't know the interaction between environment, genetics, and epigenetics that's going to have an effect on your kid. And so, you have to act prudently. You have to act. We, we need morality because we don't know the future. Right? I mean, if, if somebody knew, like, had this kind of George Burns situation, that garden dome slash comedian uh, who smoked cigars every day and lived to be like 100 or something like that, yeah. Okay, well, if you know you're going to live to be 100, then I guess you feel more comfortable not quitting smoking cigars. Unlike Freud, who smoked like 20 cigars a day and had, you know, unbelievably horrifying and repetitive cancers that ate up his face and jaw and all that. Well, he should have quit. People said to him, uh, you know, this uh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I hate that phrase. Oh, I hate that phrase. Because it was told by a liar. Because people said to Freud, well, if you're so into self-knowledge and you're such a healer and you're so good at knowing what makes people tick, why are you still so hopelessly addicted to cigars? What do they represent to you? 
And he said, well, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It's not. And, and of all the people who would say that, a man involved in an incre- incredibly self-destructive habit that mutilated, wounded, and killed him. Yeah, that's not just a cigar. And, you know, any time you, you talk about anything deep that might be around people, they can wave this Freudian, oh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Don't, don't overthink things. Don't, don't think so deep, man. Just relax and enjoy. Sometimes a cigar is all. The few phrases I'd scrub from the English language if I could, and one of them would be, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Well, tell that to Monica Lewinsky. Anyway, sorry, you were going to say? <laughs> I've never uttered that phrase. I've heard it several times. I've never used it myself. Yeah, it's, it's whenever you get close to people's emotional defenses, they pull out this Freudian avoidance mechanism. And anyway, do you mind if I get to the next caller? I really appreciate the call, and, and I appreciate your passion for these, uh, these issues, and I hope that you'll have a chat with your kids because uh, I'm sure they'll do fine. I appreciate your time. I really do. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Great pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, up next is Omar. Omar wrote in and said, why is learning certain pickup artist skills, such as how to talk to women you think is attractive, bad if for some guys you genuinely were only capable of sabotaging yourself without them? That's from Omar. Hello. Right. Hi, Omar. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. Uh, I'm, I'm doing good because I have no idea what language means. I'm doing well. Thank you. Hopefully I'm doing good too, but I'm doing well. So, um... Are you shy around girls you're attracted to? Uh, well, not anymore. I used to be. I used to not even be able to look at them in the eyes. Like if I liked them, I. <laughs> is I staring at their tits is that? Uh, no, is no, that, no, no. Like I wouldn't talk to them, and I. You see through these nipples, right? I mean, this is <laughs> your eye contact, is that right? Yeah. No, like I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even have the courage to even say hi to them in the morning. You know, when I was going to school. Right. I just walk into the classroom, talk to all the ones that I didn't like, and right. wish I could. Now, why do you why do you wish you could? <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm going to make the case that I think male shyness, Omar, is 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 highly underrated. But but anyway, tell me. So why did you why did you wish you could? So I could get to know them, uh, go out with them, I guess. And why did you want to go out with them? Not women as a whole, but these women in particular. Or girls. Because they were attractive. Physically attractive. Pretty. Right. They were pretty. Maybe your shyness was your brain trying to stop your penis from killing you. Hmm. Maybe it's a bad <sighs> idea to want to go out with a woman just because she's pretty. Maybe that's a terrible idea. Maybe your shyness is your virtue saying, steer clear of the high cheekboned acid vagina that's going to eat you alive. Maybe, but I, I do recall the times that I, I might have started liking a girl that I didn't find as much as, as attractive as, let's say, girl A, I find her extremely attractive, but I never talk to her. And then girl B, I find reasonably attractive but I don't like her and then after a while of talking to her I like her and at that moment the girl stops liking me because I start like shifted my mindset towards her I'm sorry I don't can you 
I'm sorry if I, I, I was doing well until about halfway through it. So if you can run me through that scenario again. <clears throat> okay, sorry. I'm, I didn't rehearse this part at all, so <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time. Uh, okay, so in the past, what happened... Man, just think of me as a totally hot chick. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to know what I'm wearing? <laughs> no. A smile? <laughs> and a diaphragm. Uh, <laughs> anyway, very cool. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, so... Um, <laughs> So what would happen to me in the past is there would be a girl, there would be girls that I liked for who they are, and I just hanged up, hung out with them, and then the girl. And you weren't shy with them. Not when I didn't. What? Not when I didn't have the intention of escalating the relationship. I don't know how to call it, say that. So but, you know, when you were when you were in the friend zone with them, you weren't shy. Exactly. Right. Okay. Got it. And then when. When your your penis rose, your confidence fell, right? Yeah, all of a sudden I would start acting in really dumb ways and just right. pushing them away, basically. And have had you ever have experience, Omar, when you were a kid of seeing any self-destructive aspects or elements to male sexuality? I'm not sure. I'm sure I did, yes. Not that I, well, I don't remember. know. You sound like theoretically, like, have you ever seen a cloud? I'm sure I did. I can't remember any. Right. So, and, and I'm asking, so did you ever see a guy who dated the wrong girl and ended up in some god-awful breakup or some god-awful divorce or who got a stalker or, you know, whatever, right? I mean, just the, the, the girl, they broke up and then she's like, dissed him to all the friends or like, did you ever see when you were growing up uh, somebody who got dick-napped and then uh, it just went from bad to worse? In other words, they followed their sexual desires and impulses, and it just went bad. <laughs> well, you could say pretty much everybody around me. All right. So they had PTSD, <laughs> which is post-traumatic sex disorder, which is, uh, you know, they, they dipped their wick in crazy and went up in flames, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody really seems to have a lot of issues around where I live. Just in general, everybody I meet seems to have incredible issues that seem to not really, like, they just have problems, you know what I mean? Like, No, I don't know what you mean. Uh, Issues and problems is so generic, it's like, they're carbon-based life forms, you know what I mean? Kind yeah. of, but I'm not sure how it advances what we're chatting about. Sorry, I have uh, a way of just assuming everybody already knows what I'm talking about. Uh, so what you were talking about with your one of your previous callers about people arguing about the dumbest things in the world, like who left the jacket in the wrong place. Right. So yeah, that that's the kind of things that I saw around the houses. Okay, so penis penis carries a heavy burden. Penis pays a heavy price, right? Yes. Right. No, and and I I saw this uh, I saw this when I was growing up. I'm trying to put my experience onto yours, but you know I grew up in the matriarchal manner, so a whole bunch of pretty low rent single moms, and any of the guys who were around were. Not the apex of male quality, to put it as nicely as possible, and um, they were just uh, pussy beggars, right? I mean, and so the idea that male sexual desire is a very dangerous force for a man, well, that's an important thing to know, right? I mean, we have this kind of thing, like the, it's like it's like sociopaths are training us in self confidence. 
you know, well, you gotta, you gotta bust through your terror and you gotta, you gotta break through your anxiety and any fears or inhibitions you have, just push through them, ignore them, step over them like bodies on a careless street, push on through, just get what you want. Don't let any fear hold you back. Fear is actually very, very helpful (laughs) in this world. And, um, the idea that we should not feel anxiety or caution or apprehension or downright terror when in the presence of women whose mere physical attractiveness is what is motivating us. Well, that's crazy, man. That's when you should be on DEFCON infinity, (laughs) on high, high alert. And again, it's not because attractive women are bad and fundamentally or anything like that, but... um, particularly when they're young and and they're at the height of their sexual market value. Well, they are, um, they have a lot of power. And there are some people that power does not corrupt as much, but they're usually not 17. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that when you get sexually attracted to a woman, your caution and concern might be very healthy. If you've seen male sexuality wreck men before. Oh, I don't even know how to to respond to this, to be honest. See, there's a theory. There's a theory. I don't know how true it is, but I'll, I'll tell you the theory. And the theory goes something like this. That women do not fall in love with a man the way that a man falls in love with a woman. And let's talk about Billy Joel. We don't talk about BJs enough on this show. Let's talk about Billy Joel. So, Billy Joel, have you ever heard the song Uptown Girl? Mm, uh, no, I have not. Oh, come on. Seriously? Uptown Girl, <laughs> you've been living in your uptown world. Oh, yeah. So, he that did one, this. That one. Yeah, you know the one, right? Um, so, <laughs> Billy Joel. A nice enough guy, but he looks like a cross between an undertaker and a basset hound. A great singer, like fantastic singer, a great pianist and all that. So in in the video, and I'm sure you can catch this on YouTube, but in the video for Uptown Girl, Uptown Girl is a song he wrote for Christy Brinkley, who was like the top supermodel, I don't know, the 80s or whenever the hell he put that uh, Innocent Man album I think he came out of. And in this, he's like, uh, he's singing, he's dancing, he's chasing after her, he's offering her things and so on. And what's she doing? Why? She's walking. So he's got to have like a great singing voice and lots of money. He's written her whole dedicated song. He's got a whole production company. He's got his dancers. He's chasing after her. And, and he's like, and, and she brings a walk. To the table, right? I mean, you, you see this compensation factor, right? Uh-huh, yeah. His job and is so, to perform and she... Her yeah, job his job is to bring, like, me plus, plus, plus. And she brings, I'm pretty, right? And I'm sure there's other things to her. I'm, I'm just talking about the video, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, and you can certainly share with me, Omar, your experiences... But when I was younger, while I fell in love, I went 
insane. I went insane. I felt like this yearning inside of me, this desire for connection, this hunger for completion, this, like, I fell hard. And I'm not alone in that. I had a question. Uh, How long did it take you to fall in love with someone? Ah, well, I mean, now that I've been joyfully married for 13 years, I'd say it's a little bit different. But when I was younger, um, um, maybe two, three months. Okay, okay. Sorry, indeed. But I mean, the yearning and all of that, like the, the yearning was so strong. And, you know, if you look at uh, male accomplishments, men are driven by such mad ambition, crazy ambition. It's a form of sexual display. It's a mating display, right? You know, for women, tools of the trade or a makeup shop. And for a man, it's petroleum engineering college or whatever. (laughs) It's everything. So a man goes crazy for a woman. And there's lots of philosophers throughout history and, and artists and so on who have likened romantic love to a form of madness a form of madness. Now, a woman cannot afford that biologically, right? Because for a woman, um, falling head over heels in love, in lust, we should probably say, this is both for men and for women. But for a woman to fall head over heels in lust throughout most of our evolution as a species prior to the welfare state was sometimes literally suicide, right? Because if she got pregnant by the wrong guy, that was it for her. That was it. She could be cast out. And so men fall head over heels in love, but women calculate. Because a man is trying to get access to fertile, healthy eggs, but a woman is trying to get access to 20 years worth of massive resources. <laughs> so a man will fall head over heels in love, and it is a very dangerous state of mind to be in. Because the woman is not doing that. Again, we're talking prior to the welfare state. The woman is calculating, and she should be. This is not a cynical or negative view of women. This is just the inevitable biological effects of the wildly disproportionate investment and costs for childbearing between men and women. And so the value that a young woman brings to a young man is immediate and obvious. Facial symmetry, hip-to-waist ratio, right amount of subcutaneous fat, lustrous hair, clear skin, white teeth, whatever it is, right? All that indicate genetic fitness and fertility, right? Right there. Boom. Don't have to gamble on it. Don't have to wait that maybe it's going to come around later. Boom. Right there. Uh Uh-huh. And so the balls are like, go get him, tiger. (laughs) Get him, get him, get him, get him, right? But the women can't afford that. Enthusiasm. The women are putting their eggs on the table and saying, in return, I need at least a quarter century of 90% of your resources. And those resources better be significant. And a woman feels more pride the more resources her eggs can command. 
And that's exactly how it should be. This is not a complaint in any way, shape, or form. It's just it's the reality. And I've asked before, did anyone ever expect George Clooney to marry Melissa McCarthy? Or Amy Schumer? Or anything? Right? No. George Clooney is going to marry what, Emile or whatever her name is, right? This lustrous-haired grasshopper <laughs> with a law degree, right? And the amount of resources that a woman's beauty can command is something that she takes great interest in. And just as men try to present themselves as sometimes better than they are, more wealthy or with more potential than they are, the woman will try to present herself as more fertile and more attractive as she is. And it's this game. And it's a very serious game because it's why we're all here and why we've evolved. And so when a man falls in love, he loses his mind because he should. Because the woman is the one who's supposed to say yes or no. Right? This is why you know, I criticize single moms. I mean, it takes two to tango. No, it doesn't. It's a man's job to propose and it's the woman's job to say yes or no. I mean, sexuality, right? Marriage, whatever, right? And so... so Sorry. uh, sorry. Uh, So, are you saying I should fall head over heels over a woman? No, you will. Like it or not. Okay. I wish. That'd be nice. No, you will. You will. And if you're sensible... See, in the past, a man could fall head over heels in love with a woman, and he could trust the woman to be his brain, right? But uh, but talking prior to birth birth control, prior to the welfare state, and it's no accident that the welfare state came along right after birth control. But um, so the man could fall head over heels in love and pursue the woman with all the mad magic of his desire, and he could rely on the woman to say yes or no, Mm -hmm. right? And, and that's fine. That's natural, and that's how it should be. Now, when the welfare state comes along, it's a whole different situation. And when family court comes along, and alimony, and child support, and you name it, and all that comes along. Because then what happens is the woman has lost almost all of her biological incentives and desire to say no. Or not until you've put it right. If you like, you should have put a ring on it, right? So she gets married. She gets commitment from the man. So the woman's standards could be lower. The man can have sex with her. She can get pregnant. In the past, she would have said no and gritted her teeth and crossed her legs until she got the commitment from the man to marry her. But now he can get her pregnant in his mad, feverish state of romantic and sexual desire. And then his life is over. Right, the the welfare state plus family court, alimony, child support, you name it, feminism to a large degree, has made a man's sexuality incredibly dangerous to him. Because if he sleeps with the wrong woman, his life can be destroyed. And formerly, it was the woman's life who was destroyed if she slept with the wrong person, so she gritted her teeth and said no. Now, men have not evolved to grit their teeth and say no, right? And studies have confirmed this many, many times. You, some attractive guy walks up to a bunch of women in a bar and offers gratuitous sex, and you know most of them say no. The exact opposite happens. Most of the guys say yes. Men have not evolved to self-restrain sexually. It's not a winning productive strategy, a reproductive strategy. But women evolved to restrain themselves sexually in order to grant fertility only to the man who was willing to commit 
to providing resources for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, right? But now a man's sexuality is uninhibited by the woman's skepticism and the woman's capacity to grit her teeth and say no until she has a commitment. So men are designed to put on the mating display and to rush and to write poems and to be Cyrano de Bergerac and to found companies and to buy ridiculous cars and all that. The men are all do the mating display and it's the woman's job historically to say no until she finds the guy who's going to bring her the right stuff, or at least according to her best estimation, right? Because the man's fertility is taken for granted. The woman's fertility is immediately obvious and evident, but the man's future productivity is a dice roll, right? Maybe he'll uh-huh. be a CEO. Maybe he'll uh, get carpal tunnel syndrome and <laughs> not or whatever, right? Maybe he'll become a drunk. Maybe he'll run away. Maybe he'll whatever, right? So the woman has to have... This is why when I say during initial the initial flush of romance, the man is head over heels, but the woman still retains some calculating element. And, and that's how it should be. And so in the current situation and environment, a man's sexuality, in the past there was the danger of the shotgun wedding, right? Like you got the girl pregnant and then the community forced you to marry the girl, right? Uh-huh. And that was dangerous. But now it's even worse because now the woman can run to the state and take all your money for the next 20 years or more. And you don't even get some of the comforts of married life. And so it's interesting to me that male caution around sexuality, male fear of women has grown as the unjust power of women has grown through the state. And then you get this pickup artistry that is supposed to overcome this caution and fear that men have towards their own sexuality. And my argument is, no, (laughs) I don't think you should. Okay, but so uh, if you didn't work on your anxiety, how would you get together with a woman that was in fact, uh, what do you call them? Uh, I forget what the the term was, a high quality woman? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so okay, so if, if you're afraid, or if I'm afraid, and I can't even look at the girl that I like in the eyes enough, or even, I can't no, even that's talk to her. she's dangerous. That's because she's dangerous because it's when sexuality comes along. And what that uh-huh. means is that, for, and again, you, we can say paranoid. I don't think that's the case necessarily. I wouldn't even go there to begin with. But um, you are not getting signals of security and safety back from the women you're attracted to which means women are in their calculating mode and therefore cannot be uh, vulnerable and surrender to the possibility of love. Okay. Now, if you meet a woman who has uh, the wisdom, the self-knowledge, the intelligence, the whatever, the X factor, that allows her to be open and vulnerable and willing to admit her attraction to you, then she's not using her sexuality. 
right? For, for young women, sexuality is an enormous power, a staggering, mind-bending power that men literally cannot conceive of. And it's very hard for young women to not use that power. So, you know, men have this fantasy of the librarian, right? The sexy librarian. <laughs> no, it's a very, very common fantasy, right? That, you know, she takes off her glasses and shakes down her hair. And, <laughs> you know, next thing you know, she's... I wouldn't be bad. <laughs> but that's a very tempting fantasy, right? Because there's a woman who is not willing to blind a man with her sexuality. There's a woman who is not going to use her sexuality to bone scrape the living intelligence out of a man, but is willing to get to know him as a person. It doesn't mean she won't be sexual. It doesn't mean she's not a sexual being. It means that there's a woman who respects a man enough to not daze him with her physical appeal. Okay. <laughs> like Jessica Rabbit... <laughs> It's not, it's so R, R for rabbit. But so the, the, a woman who's, you know, all made up and looking, or it doesn't have to be makeup or whatever, just doing whatever she can to enhance her attractiveness and is trying to be as, as physically attractive as possible and so on. She almost by definition is not looking for a quality guy because she's speaking to the penis and not to the brain. You know, like there's this old cliche. It's like, hey, my eyes are up here. It's like, well, then why are your tits out? You know, if you're wearing some low-cut dress, the man's going to look at your cleavage. Then to get up offended and upset is so manipulative, right? So I, I fail to see how learning uh, how to not be afraid of talking, and just to people in general too, you could say, would be... A bad thing. I mean, I understand I don't know. why but we have... You didn't tell me you're afraid of talking to people in general. You said very clearly that you're fine with women until you're sexually attracted to them. Well, I would say I was... I, back then, I was also afraid of standing out in general. All right. I was a, sh a shy person, but definitely a lot more shy. When it came but how work. do you know it was shy? Maybe you were in a dangerous environment. I mean, there, aren't, there do seem to be some genetic elements to shyness and all that, but shyness also may be a, a greater sensitivity to a dangerous environment, right? Like if, 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 if there's some rustling sound in the deep undergrowth when I'm camping, I don't say, well, I'm shy to go and explore, right? <laughs> I'm scared to go and explore because it could be something dangerous, right? But should we deal with a fear? Because the, the problem is how I dealt with the fear back in the day, which was to avoid any contact at all. Or Maybe that saved you. Maybe right now you'd be living in a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you know in a bridge down by the river, right? I mean, maybe you'd have been raped by the family court system. Maybe you'd have, you know, two kids with two horrible manipulative women. I'm just, I'm just, it's a possibility. 
Yes, I mean, maybe, of course. Yeah. Uh, maybe your question saved you. Yeah, I could have, you know, 10 Because it's the, woman's, it's the woman's job. Look, a woman with any intelligence and sensitivity knows this about men. A woman with any intelligence and sensitivity knows this about men. And therefore, a good woman, what will she do? She will help you to feel at ease. When we are in um, uncharted territory, it's nice when someone tells us where we are, right? You know, like the blind guy in the subway really appreciates it when the crackle, snorky, borky speaker spits out the next station, right? When we don't know where we are, it's... It's nice to have an update, right? And so a woman who is of quality will know your shyness, will see your shyness, and will work to put you at ease. Do you see? You see that what I'm talking about here, Omar, is the degree to which I want you to raise your standards for women. I bet you, did it ever cross your mind that it's partly the woman's job to put you at your ease? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, oh, not you then. did? You have thought of that before? Not then, now, yeah. Like uh, now, right now? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Now it's, I mean, it's changed, a, I, I've changed a lot since the beginning of when I, I had a lot of fear. Where now, when I talk to a woman, first, I, I, I know I probably shouldn't do it, but I, my first criteria for being, for even considering something with somebody, with a woman, is or okay no i mean okay yes i'll just say it because that's the truth um so i look for beauty first and then once i find it or not necessarily extreme but just enough to please me visually once Uh, i find it then i speak to her to try to see what her mind is like because it is I, I understand it's incredibly important to find somebody that you can speak to be, with about more than just yeah you know no, no. the last part because because divorce is so incredibly dangerous for men like men die like flies after they get divorced there are high levels of suicide like it is divorce is like incredibly dangerous for men, which is why this, the, the requirement for female virtue has gone up so enormously. Because women have so much more power now to destroy a man's life than they ever had in the past. Oh, yeah. I mean, and so, so, I mean, because we, we have marriage is it's a government program <laughs> these days, right? And men are like the captive livestock, and women have all the power. In general, I think what Halle Berry has to pay child has to pay alimony to one of her exes, a couple of like ten, fifteen thousand a month, and she's fighting it like crazy. But in general, women have such an enormous power under the current system, and because of that, you really, really need a virtuous woman. Absolutely. Like, and so for you to say, well, I'm looking at beauty first, well. <laughs> You really think that's gonna? That's the way to go. Well, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So, let's say you're looking for a car, and you want uh, an efficient car that's not going to leave you stranded on the street. 
So first you want to make sure the car has wheels and an engine. I'm not sure if this analogy is correct. I think that you are going in the wrong direction. <laughs> I think you know that, right? Because <laughs> you're just saying, well, I don't know. Has it got a great spoiler? <laughs> it's got a great spoiler. I don't know. Maybe I can bolt some wheels onto it later. I don't know. I just I think it's too hard to to try to find out whether every single person in the world is... is uh... Oh, man. You are just trying to annoy the living shit out of me now. Oh, I'm sorry. Not Come on. It's just a little too difficult to try and figure out whether every single person in the world, how virtuous they are down to 14 decimal places. Come on. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Well, what, what I'm trying to say is I'm definitely not trying to annoy you, though. That's, I might be. I'm, oh, no, I, I usually I that, misspeak, though. <laughs> so. Sometimes unintended consequences. <laughs> But it's a bit of a false, like when I say it's important to look at virtue, and then you say, well, it's impossible to judge the virtue of every human being on the planet. You, you get that that's, you know, you might want to make a little bit more money so you have more financial freedom. Well, it's impossible for me to own every single piece of currency the world over and all of the gems and gold and diamonds and bitcoins. It's like, that's not what, I, you know what I mean? Like you're creating such an exaggerated response that it's annoying, right? Because it means that you're bothered by what I'm saying, but you're not being honest about it. Well, I'm sorry. If I, I'm, if I am annoyed, I'm not even fully aware of it. Um, no, I know. I know. Uh, I'm making you aware. <laughs> but no, you, you want, you want the pretty girl, right? And, you want the, the, hot, and the nice one. And the nice girl. I get that. And look, I'm not saying the two are always opposites. They're hard to right? find. Well, um, if you want the hot girl, you have to be the rich guy. And you have to stay the rich guy, and you better hope that she doesn't get bored of you or another richer guy comes along. Because if you're going to choose a woman by her fertility, then she is going to choose you for your resources. You understand? Mm -hmm. Because you can't say, well, I'm going to judge the woman by her sexual market value, which is fertility and good eggs, which is all, all beauty is just a marker for good eggs, right? Uh -huh. So I'm going to choose a woman for her fertility markers, but I don't want to choose her to choose me for my resource markers. But if you're going to have that standard and say, well, fuck virtue, I'm just going to go with base biological advantage, then most likely she is going to do exactly the same thing. That's, that's the bargain. If you're going to head for pretty, she's going to head for your resources. And that's one thing if it's just her, but she's going to come with a whole army of lawyers over time if that's the way she decides to play it. And you are not going to have a fun rest of the planet. Well, I wouldn't. Oh, crap. Oh, I'm trying to, Do you I'm trying have to a stay lot of on track. Oh, no, no. I mean, depends on where you... <laughs> no, not for the United States, no. From the United States. Okay, so you're not rich. No, not yet. So you don't have the excess resources that historically would be that which buys physical beauty on the woman's part, right? Not in this country, no. So you're an ugly woman. Who wants a hot guy? In the United States, right? Yes. If we're just talking about we're just talking about base biological sexual market value, a poor guy is an ugly woman. Oh, what would you consider well off? 
well, if you, okay, out of one to ten, what level of physical attraction do you want? Um, as, as long as it's paired with a, a very... No, no, no. You said you look for looks. So don't give me this, like, virtue backstop thing. You first thing you notice is the woman's beauty. What do you want? Uh, ten. Wanted. I'm sorry? Ten, sorry. I didn't... Okay, a ten. Now, a ten is not nine to ten. I assume a ten is the upper end of ten. So you're looking at one woman out of a hundred, right? Yeah, realistically more okay. than less than that, but yeah. Well, let's just say, just to start, right? So you want a one percenter, right? Yeah. Mike, could you do me a wee favor? Could you look up for me what the average income is for the top one percent of American earners? I believe it's about $150,000 or more. And that's not counting assets that they've accumulated over time. Uh, average so, annual income, $717,000. That's what? not... The, oh, I'm thinking, maybe I'm thinking top 10%. Okay, so the top 1% is almost three quarters of a million dollars a year, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, average annual income of the top 1% of the population, 717000 Okay, so 750 would be three-quarters of a million. We'll just say $700,000 a year. So in terms of the resources that a man can bring to having kids, the top 1% of resource bringers can legitimately ask for the top 1% of physical beauty on the part of a woman because beauty for resources is the traditional reality, right? And so if you want the top 1% of women, you better be in the top 1% of earners. Okay. And um, the top 1%, not only do they have incomes of over $700,000 a year, they have assets of $8.4 million on average. Are you sitting on that kind of coin? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Come on, really? Yeah, I'm going to work. I'm just working towards it. <laughs> right. How long do you think it's going to be till you're making $700,000 a year? with uh, $8 million plus in assets? Maybe five, if I really, really, really start working on it, which I'm trying to, maybe five years. In five years, you hope to be have $8.5 million? No, maybe not. No, probably more like 10 years. I mean, if it, if, unless I find something more lucrative or in my current idea it works out better than I think it will. Okay, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not one to say no to a dream. You know, I'm just a plucky little podcaster with a dream of changing the world. So uh, I'm not going to say no to a dream, but that's a pretty ambitious dream, right? Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's, it doesn't seem that ambitious. It is. I mean, if in 10 years you want to be worth $8.5 million and making $700,000 a year, first of all, if you make $700,000 a year starting now and going on for 10 years, okay, you've made $7 million, but that's pre-tax, pre-living expenses. I mean, you'd have to be making $2-plus million a year to even get close to, to what we're talking about. And, and, you know, making $2 million a year, uh, that's, what, $10,000 an hour? Yeah, that's uh, it's quite ambitious. Okay, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, it's not like, impossible, yeah. but I'm just saying 
Um, I wouldn't want you to end up disappointed if you're if you haven't done the math. Now, if you just want one of the top ten percent of attractiveness in women, again, if you just go and buy base biological realities, then you've got to be. It's a lot less stressful, right? Because the top ten percent to be in the top ten percent of American earners, you have to be making one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. Wait, so, can, you know, I, right? can I put significantly uh, less seven hundred and nineteen? Sorry, go ahead. So okay, I, I guess real like I I like to aim. For ten, right? But for example, the most the girl that I've liked the most in my life, which probably is pretty funny, I didn't actually have a relationship with. Um, I'd say, as far <laughs> as far as looks are concerned, was probably about a seven on what I like to call the international scale. But what was special about her was actually her personality. Mm -hmm. And why did you marry her? Marry her? No, I, I didn't marry her. Or no, why didn't you marry her? I said. Oh, why didn't I marry her? Because uh, she didn't like me enough. And I, more specifically, I, the reason I think I, she didn't marry me is because I was not confident enough or mature enough when I met her. Right. She was, is four years older than me. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, if I, I, I mean, I look for beauty, like kind of the same way that if I was made, I'm again, sorry if I make a bad analogy in the same way that I look for a car, I look for the fastest one first. But if I find one that's not as fast, for example, a Tesla, not as fast as a Ferrari at top speed, but I still prefer the Tesla over the Ferrari because of a lot of other things. I would say that. Okay, and I'm asking, can you afford, like, are you just looking at cars you can't afford? Like, if a woman called in, like, seriously, like, this is what you need to understand, man. If a woman called in, Omar, and said to me, I want a guy who's worth $8.5 million and who makes at least $719,000 a year. What do you think I would say? Sorry, if who, who asked for that? A if woman a wo calls in, right? And she says, I look for money first. Yes. And, and I want a guy who's worth $8.5 million in assets yes. and who makes at least $719,000 a year because I look for money first. What would I say? Uh, I don't want to guess. I don't know. What would you say? What would you say? Some woman says that to you. Ah, you know what, Omar? I mean, I'm really, I'll look for money first. I, you know, I'll look for the personality afterwards. I look for ka-ching, ka-ching. I look for cash first, baby. <laughs> the guy doesn't have eight and a half million in assets and $719,000 a year in income. Fuck him. I, got, I, don't, I don't care. I don't want to have anything to do with that loser. <laughs> what would you say? I'd tell her that she, probably the guy that makes that much money wouldn't be interested in her for that mindset. And you know what else you'd say? What? That's pretty horrible. <laughs> like, you're a pretty horrible human being. And I, I'm not saying you're... Uh, that, that part of you is, is not pleasant. Because look, and, and what, if, what if she said, oh, and by the way, the guy also has to have inherited his money. I don't want anyone who has to actually work for it. God, then he'll be gone a lot. I don't want some workaholic guy. I want a guy who's going to come and drape me in diamonds and is going to drape me in fur and is going to give me iPad shoes to wear. And, and that's the guy. But I don't want him to have to go to work for it. I want this all to be trust fund stuff. 
Well, what I'd realistically tell her is to go ahead, go and try to find that. But I, I don't know. Sorry. Only if you hated her. <laughs> and do you know why I include inherited? No. Because women do not earn, in general, their beauty. Mm-hmm. Right? Because beauty, physical beauty, I mean, yeah, okay, women work at it, right? I mean, models don't eat and, and uh, I don't know, exercise every second month, whether they need it or not. And uh, so, yeah, but, but in terms of facial structure and, and lustrous hair and at least the capacity to have a great figure, I mean, a lot of women are, you know, like um, they're bags of potatoes, you know? Some women are hourglass figures and some women are like this freakish Marilyn Monroe one in a billion kind of figure. But, you know, it's like what Rosie O'Donnell says in some movie, you know, guys want big tits and a small ass, you know, <laughs> you don't get both <laughs> Want a big tits. You generally get a big ass. And uh, there are, of course, a few freaks, right, where women have like tiny waists and giant tits and, and they have the full complement of everything, like great hair, great, you know, whatever, right? great eye, great smile, great teeth, great figure, great face, great, like the whole, right, the Jennifer Garner package, right? But th- they're famous I mean, I like Jeff Garner, don't get me right. They're famous because they're freaks. Because they won the genetic lottery. And so if the woman says, well, I, I want the guy to have inherited, you're saying, I want a woman who is that rare, that beautiful, didn't earn it, and is uncorrupted by it. So I want this guy who's worth $8.5 million, makes $719,000 a year. I want him to have inherited this money, and I want him to have a great work ethic and can be, be completely unaffected by all the money he's inherited. Do you, do you see that you're starting to get a little bit on the low end of the probability scale at this point? Because I want this woman to be hot, but also virtuous and completely unaffected by her hotness, even though she accidentally inherited it and is at the very height of her sexual power. I want this guy who's born super rich and, and has a great work ethic, is, is completely unaffected by his wealth, and has $8.5 million in the bank, and blah, 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 right? I mean, you, you get that this is like, God, this is what drives women insane. <laughs> and I, I get it. I agree with it. I'm not going to let you go, hey, Omar, good luck with that, because, you know... I want my listeners to breathe. <laughs> but um, but no, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, you know, go, go, go do that plan, right? Uh-huh. So what should, I, what should I aim for? What do you think I should aim for? The beauty that you're after will fade. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. Right? The beauty that you're after will fade. And the beauty, beauty is for fucking virtue is for family right if you want a happy life have a virtuous woman it's not the only thing it's necessary but not sufficient uh huh but you aim for virtue I do aim for See, virtue the, no, no come on man <laughs> I mean, aim for virtue in the unlikely places R's look <laughs> for hotness K's look for fitness Right? R's look for hotness, K's look for fitness. R's look for hotness, K's look for compatibility. R's look for attractiveness, high sexual market value, because it's not someone you're going to have to... Uh, rabbits don't live together, wolves do. Rabbits don't pair bond, wolves do. Rabbits fuck and feast. And wolves 
train and practice and hunt and instruct their children and nuzzle each other and take care of each other when they're sick and make sure that the food gets shared and they got this whole complex social organizational thing going. If you want to be a K, if you want to be a high-functioning, virtuous, dedicated, committed husband and father, then you go, not for hotness, but for fitness. You go for compatibility. You go for virtue. Because your dick gets tired of pretty fast, but your heart never gets tired of virtue. Aim for the long term. Expand your time horizon. And maybe you get the two together. I don't know much about Amal Clooney. Um, you know, she's obviously a pretty top lawyer. Um, I think Edward Snowden is one of her uh, clients, I think say customers. Uh, sorry, Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks. He's fighting against extradition. She's uh, helping him, and she's you know, a very attractive woman, and obviously, you know, very, very skilled and very intelligent and very able in her field, and maybe have lots of other virtues that I, you know, whatever, right? I mean, and it's not like George Clooney would have trouble finding some empty-headed hot woman to have sex with. I mean, he is George Clooney, and therefore he has so got this decaying patrician hotness, a silver foxiness. Uh, but uh, you know, he he managed to find the package, but. That's because he's super rich and super handsome and super famous. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, he did date Stacy Keebler, to be fair, who I believe is a long-legged queen of the elves. I'm not sure. Uh, I know she's got cook- the cookies involved somewhere. But, uh, yeah, Stacy Keebler, who was on Dancing with the Stars, and I believe before that was involved in wrestling in some fashion. Um, I think she was a central tunnel support because she's that tall. And um, so, yeah, but, but who he settled down with was, you know, he went for beauty and, and brains and so on. But um, I would say that, uh, you know, shyness may be that it's not it's not that, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're setting your sights too high. No, you're setting your sights too low. God, aiming at just beauty is totally setting your sights too low. Totally. Oh, you know, she's tall and she's pretty and she's hot and she's... Rah. That is totally setting your sights too low. That's like, that's rabbit reproduction, not Wait, wolf commitment. Can I interject real quick? Yeah. I do. I, maybe I, I miss. I didn't explain myself correctly. But if I see a really, really hot girl and she is really stupid, I don't. I generally don't talk to her. As in, I might talk to her, and then I fi- find out she's retarded, or just maybe not retarded. Um, just not ambitious, or just you know doesn't have the well, I get light it. bulb. It's low quality for whatever yes. reason, based upon your whatever you're looking for, right? Yeah, I do want to. Oh, clarify. I get that. I, I get that. I and look, that. when I when I'm calling someone out on their shallowness, I usually will get the "I'm not really that shallow" speech, and I, I get that. I understand that, and I, you know, you can backpedal all you want, and I'm talking partly to you, Omar, but I'm of course talking to a lot of other men okay. and women <laughs> out there as well. Because listen, there are lots of fantastic women who are incredibly frustrated that jerks keep throwing themselves and smashing themselves on the rocks of ice queen pretty idiots right there's nothing nothing more frustrating for a good solid woman who hasn't been blessed with winning the genetic lottery of high cheekbones and you know tits the point in the same direction there's nothing more frustrating than than really high quality women watching guys step on their faces in order to get to the idiot ice queen perfect body woman right Mm -hmm. so I'm not just talking to you and I'm not trying to put you in this category of you know, insanely ridiculous standards and blah, blah. I mean, I mean, I get that I'm making a strong case here because I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking okay. to 
I'm playing for mankind, right? <laughs> like I'm talking to, to everyone and there's other guys out there who need this kind of backslap across the face, right? It's, you know, guys need a punch in the nads to reorient themselves away from the haughty gravity wells of majestic masculine self-destruction. So I'm not trying to put you in this category and saying this is all you are. I'm just <laughs> pointing out that um, what you call shyness, I call potential self-preservation. Well, I can't, I can't even say what I would do now if I, because I, I almost don't even feel any fear anymore. Yeah, I don't like that. I know it's actually it's actually pretty funny because one of the best feelings ever was getting over the fear, but now yeah, and I'm not saying go back to being paranoid and terrified of of everything that uh, you know is missing the dangly bits. I'm just saying that um, the the overcoming of fear is not the achievement of wisdom, and it certainly is not the achievement of strength. You know, fear is a highly underrated emotion. You know, fear and anger are the two highly underrated emotions in in the modern world. I mean, you look at, um, I mentioned the movie Inside Out, and you know, watch it, you know, fear and anger are ridiculous and dangerous and never helpful, right? And, and so this reality that, um, you know, the, 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 the summit of wisdom is the overcoming of all cautionary emotions, you know, not good. You know, there was a, a I mentioned this years ago on the show, you read these books, the Thomas Covenant series by Stephen R. Donaldson many years ago. And uh, he was a leper, and he had no sensation, of course, in his extremities, and he had to do what was called a VSE, a visual search of extremities, to find out if he'd injured himself because he couldn't feel it. Lack of sensation is um, extremely dangerous in general. And again, I'm not saying that you've <laughs> become some person immune to all human emotions, like some hardy chasing sex robot of imminent doom, but what I am saying is that I, I think that more respect for caution is, uh, is important. And um, there are, I'm sure, there are very hardworking guys out there who inherited $10 million, who have a great work ethic and are wonderful people and virtuous people and so on. It's just that they would very much be an outlier in that, in that situation. And what you're looking for may be, um, what you're looking for may be so rare that you're going to end up dissatisfied no matter what. Right. Like I remember I watched a movie called The Fisher King many years ago and um, with Christine Baranski and Jeff Bridges. And I do remember seeing Robin Williams penis. I don't think that was a dream. And the movie right. was fairly incoherent, although there was some Christine Lati was in. It. I think she was great. Uh, can I say something that, that you said that made me laugh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right now, when you said uh, uh, that <laughs> I mean, you said you're sure there's some people that inherit a lot of money and. Uh, are still hardworking people. <laughs> it remind, have you seen the video of <laughs> Donald Trump where he says that he had a really hard upbringing and that he, he grew up in the Bronx and he inherited a small, no, sorry, his dad gave him a small loan of a million dollars? Well, you know, in his world, maybe <laughs> that just, is, maybe that's hard scrabble. You know, like I'm the, sorry. That's the why Wall I was Street laughing. coal miner's daughter. I don't know. Like maybe that is... <laughs> I'm sorry, that's why I was laughing and while you were talking. It's like, you reminded me of that. But um, <laughs> in... Uh, sorry, sorry, continue. But, but, you know, to be fair, I mean, Donald Trump has worked extremely hard. And he's very able, right? I mean, Wharton School of Business is not for the faint of mind. And, uh, you know, he has been very successful. Yeah, he got to step up. But so what? I mean, 
people who are very handsome get a step up genetically as well, right? People who just have born with great brains, they get a step up. Uh, and a lot of that is genetic as well. So whether you inherit the money or the genes, I don't think it hugely matters. I mean, some people are just born with advantages, right? I mean, uh, and some people are not. The people who are born like Celine Dion was born with, you know, an incredible singing voice for, you know, middle of the road pop. <laughs> and uh, that's a huge advantage. So, yeah, Donald Trump inherited some money and, um, you know, the face of an orange lumberjack of uh, business excellence. And uh, so, I, but, but the point, so back to the Fisher King. Sorry. So in the Fisher <laughs> King, there's a, th- a throwaway scene where there's this incredibly beautiful young blonde woman who's reading Nietzsche. Like, I swear, I don't know when the hell that movie was made, like 25 years ago or something like that. And uh, I still remember exactly how that woman looked. She was sitting behind a desk uh, in, in some office, and she was incredibly hot and reading Nietzsche. Now, why would I remember that? Well, for obvious reasons, right? Like, that's like, but that's very much an outlier. And um, so uh, what I'm pointing out is that um, it's the R environment and the R in you and the R culture that has you pointing yourself at the hotties. And um, I wouldn't necessarily say that your goal is to overcome your caution with regards to these women and simply not have any concern or, or, or fear or anxiety around them. Uh, I would say that um, uh, that's where you should have some reasonably high levels of caution. And um, I would invite you to look at women who who's a, who who your attraction will be more sustainable right you know if you if, you know look at a hottie then then look at her mom right and that's you know you'd be surprised how quickly that <laughs> that might show up in your life you know that that change right and um so you know my 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 caution against physical beauty is as old as time and you know people get upset about it like i'm taking away their toy it's like no i'm taking away your religion i'm taking away your delusion i'm taking away that which is most dangerous if you can find a, a virtuous woman who you also find incredibly hot, fantastic, you know, but um, you you hunt for the horses that are there, not for the unicorns you've heard about. Are you saying women are like horses? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, pretty women aren't like horses. Horses have utility. Anyway. <laughs> so, anyway, just that, that's just my... Uh, yeah, that's I mean, just my uh, my two cents on it. Absolutely. I mean, I. I mean, it. The reason. Oh, sorry, I, I really it really annoys me when I, I can't. No, listen. Take the Cosmo, out. roll it up, and hit yourself <laughs> in the dick with it until you become averse. That's all I'm saying. Um. You know, put 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 a 1985 Christie Brinkley swimsuit on a taser and hit yourself in the junk until your eyeballs smoke, and you'll be amazed how quickly you'll find love after that. Wait, what? Can you repeat that? No, you can listen to it in the show after. All right, I've got to close off the show. Um, I think that was the last caller, and I really, really, of course, appreciate hugely everyone's time, care, attention, curiosity, and honesty. Uh, Omar and the rest of the crew, thank you so much for what are truly treasured conversations for me. Like I, uh, you know, I know I'm sometimes glib, and I'm sometimes annoying, and maybe even condescending. Um, I don't mean to be. I don't know, maybe I do. But I really do... Uh, it, it is a deep honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you about things that are this important to you and this important to the world. Uh, I, I treasure these conversations every week. They are a highlight 
uh, of my week, uh, second only to finding yet another freckle in the giant biodome that covers the world called my head. So uh, thanks, everyone, so much. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. And uh, we look forward to your support and your donations. And uh, if you don't have any money, that's no problem. Just like, subscribe, share, uh, help people to get the benefit of philosophy as you have gotten it. Pay it forward, pay it round, pay it deep, pay it hard, baby. Have yourselves a wonderful week. We will talk to you soon.